Welcome to episode 284 with my guest, Dr. Lauren Costine. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code MENTAL to get 10% off your first purchase. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. Uh, it's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. But our guest today is uh, is a therapist. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, MetalPod is also the Twitter handle you can follow me at. Uh, but go to our website, fill out one of the surveys uh, that we have. We have many surveys, and they're anonymous, and maybe uh, we'll read your response on the, uh, on the, on the show. Um, you can also find a forum at the website. You can support the show at the website, all kinds of stuff. Uh, this is from The Struggle in a Sentence. Oh, and I want to remind you guys, I'm coming to um, Oakland, July 20th and 21st, uh, doing back-to-back nights. I'm recording Jamie DeWolf, who is the grandson of uh, Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard. And, um, and I'll also be uh, recording the host of uh, the podcast Snap Judgment, um, Glenn Washington. And tickets are selling out pretty quickly. So um, if you're planning on going, don't don't wait too long. And I'll put a link up on the website of this episode uh, for you to, um, to go buy tickets. <clears throat> this is from the struggle, <clears throat> excuse me, the struggle in a sentence survey. And Kate Ashlin writes about her depression, a loose string on a sweater that keeps unraveling until there is nothing left. About experiencing uh, racial or cultural bias, she writes, too native for white people and too white for native people. I hear so many people um, say that. That's got to be really hard. Um, Michelle D. writes about her OCD. Um, It's with her food. Uh, No one is to ever make my food or touch my food. If human contact comes into play while I am watching, my food is automatically contaminated and needs to be destroyed. I have difficulty eating at restaurants or receiving foods such as baked goods as a gift. Uh, About having borderline personality disorder, she writes, I can't describe how this feels. It's scary and like I'm drowning all the time. I can't imagine how overwhelming that's got to be. Um, this is filled out by a young teenager uh, who calls herself CG and about her bulimia. She writes, I empty myself out to fill the emptiness. That's, that's deep. And uh, about her codependency, you are my reason to wake up in the morning and the answer to all my questions while I am just another friend with too many unsolicited questions. That's a great one. Thank you for that, CG. Uh, And CG is somewhere between uh, 10 and 15 years old. I don't know why I don't just have people put their exact age on this, but um, I'm an idiot. Oh, there we go. This was filled out by S. um, And she writes about uh, her love addiction. While texting with a recent ex about if we can be friends, I'm torn between wanting to act in ugly ways to test if he still wants to be my friend and wanting to convince him to befriend me so I can be the one to leave him. I hate myself either way. 
about codependency, if I could just wait patiently and be very good and perfectly anticipate and meet his needs, then eventually he will realize I have value and he will love me and realize I have needs too and then he will finally meet those needs. So good. About her perfectionism, I'm convinced that if I could just come up with a perfect system for managing my life, then I would never, ever again have bad feelings. That's fantastic. Um, and Wimsium writes about uh, her dermatillomania. Every time I visit the neighbors, their four-year-old daughter asks me what's wrong with my lips. I don't say that I peeled my skin off piece by piece until I tasted copper and my hands look like murder. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone. Why hypervigilance I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you're just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house. And you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. <laughs> I'm here with Dr. Lauren Costine who uh, is an author. She's a therapist. She has a book out called uh, Lesbian Love Addiction. Um, the, the the Urge to Merge. The, 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 I had the, the title all memorized before I came in here. Um, How to heal when things go wrong. Yes. Was it fighting the urge to merge? or no. no? Understanding. Understanding the urge to merge and how to heal when things go wrong. Um, you were referred to me by a friend of mine from, from my support group. Shout out to her. Uh, there's so many things I want to talk to you uh, about. I suppose the first one would be, um, what is it specifically about the lesbian community that makes love addiction different? there than the rest of the population? Um, that's always such a great question. And um, well, there's a number of reasons, really. I mean, the first one is, uh, and it's kind of obvious, but people don't realize this is two women together, you know, and there's a difference there. For instance, it turns out our brains are different. So we are wired to connect in a way that um, men are not actually, and I'm not trying to make spe sweeping generalizations that everyone is exactly this way, but in general, this is from MRIs and studies that show we have all of these connective tissues, like we have a lot of them, mm -hmm. right? And we are like wired to read faces and relate and kind of try to figure out what, what another person's doing. So you get two of those together, there's a lot that's gonna go on. Then we also emit this uh, wonderful hormone called oxytocin when we're falling in love or we're breastfeeding. And it's- Do men uh, emit it as well? Not nearly in this way. Okay. Not nearly in this way. So you guys have all the other stuff, dopamine, and you have a lot of testosterone and things like that. But women, we have this oxytocin, we have this like, 
and it's very euphoric. So you get two women together, and they're both omitting oxytocin. I call it the oxytocin fest, right? <laughs> That's awesome. And when you are vulnerable to addiction or you're just kind of an addict yeah. in yeah. general or whatever, you can get addicted to the high mm-hmm. of the oxytocin fest that also is combined with some dopamine and all these wonderful, nice. you know, feel-good chemicals that, that get released. Mm. So that is, makes it unique right there. Um, then we have our own traumas, and part of that trauma is being, you know, a minority in a heterosexually dominated world, uh, the phobias that come from that as a result, and the invisibility and all of those things that have been thousands of years in the making. This is not yesterday or, you know, and things are better. Things are definitely better, but we have a long way to go to heal the trauma that's happened from thousands of years of institutionalized repression. I have a a friend, uh, Guy Branham, who is gay, and he said he was filling out one of our surveys, and one of the questions is, have have you ever been sexually abused? And he said, not in the traditional sense, but being gay, I believe every gay person has been abused by society. Yes, exactly. That is... Exactly. So, and then... For uh, women, you know, we also have the double trauma of misogyny and sexism. So I also coined another term I call lesbian phobia. Instead of homophobia, I wanted to combine the, uh, the fact that we have to deal with misogyny and homophobia at the same time. And we call that like a double trauma. If you're a lesbian of color, then you've got a triple trauma because you're also dealing with um, racism. So you compound, you put all these together mm-hmm. and we, you know, have higher rates of addiction, period, when you're dealing with all of this and it's affecting your sense of self and sense of self love. I would imagine it, you would constantly feel like an outsider. Mm-hmm. Constantly. And yes, constantly feel like an outsider or invisible and, um, and not the- seen. And not then, seen. Yeah. And, you know? And, and, you know, I went to uh, the Out Film Festival, and the excitement of people in the crowd to see themselves on the screen. Exactly. Was, um, it was so moving. It was so moving. And it, even though I realized LGBT community is marginalized. I don't think I really truly understood the emotion behind it, the thirst right. to see me exactly up there. To see ourselves up there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Talk it's, about that if you would. Well, it's interesting, you know, the the Oscars this year was Carol and the Danish girl. You know, so a lesbian love story and uh trans the one of the first mm-hmm. sort of Western trans stories. And both of those stories involve a ton of trauma. You know, so we can't yet tell our stories. It's really important to see it. And this love story between Carol was Carol and her, and her uh, you know, her love interest was really important because it actually they actually stayed together, which was like, you know, revolutionary, actually, because mm-hmm. usually in movies traditionally in the past, you know, someone would go back to the man or kill themselves or something, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so this was sort of very positive and affirming in that way. But at the same time, we have, we're still telling our stories against this trauma, you know, amidst, you know, the fact that society was not going to let her have her child after she, 
went to be herself, mm-hmm. you know. So, but we are so thirsty for movies like that, and to have them actually nominated is like such a big deal because what if, what most if, movies are heterosexually oriented. Yeah. So it's like, whoa, it's a big deal. What did it? What did it feel like? Um, if you can, I, I'm always interested to know physically how people feel when something moves them emotionally. When you saw the Carol was nominated when you saw that the Danish girl was nominated. It brings remember? up so much sadness and so it's joy not, it's, at the same time. Oh, really? Yeah. So I can be really sad for, because I'm like an activist at heart. You know what I mean? Like I'm really, uh, I really, in my heart and, and a core passion of mine is to make this place a better world for the LGBTQ community. Like, you know, I just am tired of the oppression and and the marginalization and discrimination and everything, you know, and I so, you know, it's it's really exciting to see the shifts in that, but I can't help but always be moved to tears around how much we've gone through, how much my community has gone through and we're still going through to this day. It's also so incredible and helpful and and joyous to see these stories as well and to see ourselves Mm -hmm. mirrored like you said you know just the emotion behind that the excitement it's you know there's there we are it's like oh i you know i exist which is i think from when we're children that's that's the first bond that the child genetically needs is is to be mirrored by their parent and yep. why wouldn't we need to be mirrored in art? Exactly. We totally do. You know, we need it. And we still need it as adults. You know, there's this really incredible uh, video that I have the link to in my book. And it's called Still Face. Have you heard of it? Mm-mm. So it's a, a short three-minute video of a mother and her little girl. And they had her, it was a study, so they had her doing the smiling oh yes and how yes yes. and then when she did the flat face yeah how her child just reacted completely differently Mm -hmm. so if you think about it even now as an adult paul if you're walking around and you just see a bunch of people with flat faces all the time don't you find yourself kind of going what's going on especially if you're codependent you're like i need to fix something (laughs) what am i doing wrong what did i do why are they (laughs) mad at me this is as somebody who's in control of the universe. This is right. I am not doing They're, my job. Right, I'm not doing my job. Everyone's not happy. Wait a minute. So it Hold turns out. For, yeah, I just want to crack the door. It is sweltering in here. Sorry about that. Go no ahead. No worries. Um, so it turns out we're wired. Our our brains are wired to 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 see things from each other yeah. from the minute we're born we need to see that we exist and one of the things I, I harp on all the time in this podcast is that neglect can be every bit emotional neglect every bit as damaging as overt abuse because the the message in both of them is you don't matter exactly yeah it's it, emotional neglect is so traumatizing and you know there's this You've probably heard of these because you're, you know, study trauma is the big T's and the little T's. Have you heard it put in that way? Mm-mm. So the big T's is like you're locked in the closet or you were smacked around or you were sexually abused and molested and things like that. And the little T's is like the ones that are more covert. 
they're not as recorded as much. You get better grades and I'll and I'll show you love. Yeah. And that might even be a very covert message. It might not even be emotionally it might not be actually overtly stated. It might be the way that you read their energy. Mm-hmm. It may be how you're treated. It may be, wow, mom is really nice to me when I do this. And then she's really cold when I seem to do this. And we are totally trying to figure people out. And when you have the inconsistency or the lack of mirroring from your parenting, you'll find yourself becoming hypervigilant about yes. reading people. I mean, I don't think there's anything as important as a parent's eye contact to mm-hmm. their child. Mm-hmm. And so much of our society is brainwashed, particularly, I think, the the professional world. It thinks if I can provide my kid with a gigantic house and a huge amount of money to go to whatever college they want, then I've done the most important thing for them. And they're like, I always feel like those things are great. But man, if you're not connecting with your eyes to that child as it's growing up, um, you are failing it in a in a huge way. And I think our society shows us that. I mean, we're we're in trouble. We're emotionally impoverished. Yes. And we're in trouble as a human race. You know, the environment and war still and you know, like we haven't figured it out yet. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we got to figure it out. But there is a there I believe there's a revolution Going on, there's a change in consciousness. I uh, completely agree with that. Yeah, I really do. I I I think we're in a renaissance Mm -hmm. with psychology and spirituality and the way that we can contact anyone from around the world. So we're getting Eastern thought and they're getting Western thought, and we can we can cross pollinate between that and learn so much from each other, and it's beautiful in that way. And I think a lot of us had to get the gadgets that we thought would fix us and feel the emptiness of that gadget of us then wanting the next gadget and realizing oh this is yeah i cannot be filled from from the outside i know mm -hmm. that sounds kind of new agey and you know whatever but no i think it's that that concept though that you know trying to fill yourself you know whatever it is lack of self-esteem self-love you know low Mm -hmm. self-worth whatever it is if you're trying to fill it with you know, outside purchases, it's momentary or whatever, yeah. a drink or a, rem- a relationship <laughs> um, or 10 relationships or sexual encounters, whatever. Um, eventually, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's insatiable. It never works. Yeah. And you need to keep needing a bigger payoff to, yes, it gets, yes. to feel the that same high. It gets greater. Yeah. Yes. Over and over and over again. Are you comfortable talking about your story, your history. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about yourself, about your childhood and and your struggles. So I grew up in a waspy family, Mm -hmm. um, non-religious, but still culturally wasp, you know, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, Uh, didn't talk about anything. We didn't talk about feelings. We didn't show our feelings. We weren't, and I was, I came in the world sort of fighting against that I wasn't really into what they wanted to be into so uh, I became the identified patient in the family and what do you mean when you say that so it was like all about I was the one with the problem I see you know it was like well Lauren's this and Lauren's that and Lauren, Lauren's difficult and, well yeah because I didn't agree with you all the time and I didn't you sound know, like my wife I wanted to my talk about is, my feelings I was really oh yes when, when my wife was in uh, Sunday school she would say why does God why is God 
a man? Why, why yes. can't God be a woman? And they right. would punish her. Right, right. That kind of thing. And like um, just questioning things and curious and not just really trusting what they were telling me all the time. The therapist and, in the making. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so I was definitely punished for that. I was um, and considered too sensitive and all these kind of things. That to me is one of the worst emotional uh, ways you can neglect your child is to invalidate their right. emotions. Yeah, you're too sensitive, you're too sensitive. So by the time I hit adolescence, I was just a mess. And I was also... Um, like in what way? I was angry. I was not listening to anybody. I was, you know, rebellious, extremely. Um, I got, give me some. Give me some snapshots. I got some. I got a hold of alcohol as soon as I could. I couldn't wait to drink and kind of numb my feelings and, you know, help me with my shyness and things like that. And then I was sexually assaulted, but I had nobody to tell. So uh. my drinking and my using got worse, and I got. Then we moved to California, I got introduced to drugs, and I was off and running. And my parents didn't know what to do. They came from the 40s and 50s, and they were just like, and you didn't, And you didn't, you didn't tell them? I didn't tell. I didn't feel did you, safe. Did you feel like they were going to blame you? Yes, or? exactly. What, what is, as you say that now, all these years later, what, is, what does that feel like to, to... It's sad. It's really sad. It's sad to me that that really vulnerable young girl who was just getting out in the world didn't have a safe place to go at all for something as traumatizing and horrible as that was. And you ha and you told nobody. Didn't tell and how nobody. old were you? Fifteen. And how long was it before you told somebody? Um, eighteen. Was it a friend or a therapist? Or? It was a friend. Yeah. It was a friend. And how did your friend react? Protective. Exactly what I needed. What did that feel like? Great. That was really what I needed. Do you remember, I'm sorry that I keep asking this, but um, do you remember what you felt in your body when, when you f shared Relief. that? Shame. Tons of shame. I mean, it took me years even years after getting sober at the age of 33 it took me years to heal the shame that i felt from that incident you know it just because i didn't have i grew up being shamed so to get rid of shame was really hard when when i share um with people um what happened to me the two things that i always feel is um, fear that they're going to think I'm making too big of a deal mm. out of it and um, feeling uh, naked, mm -hmm. sharing it again. Yeah, exposed. Yeah, exposed. Mm -hmm. That's the, the best way. Um, but when I'm met with empathy and compassion, uh, it almost feels like somebody's put, you know, doing the putting the blanket around you cliche. Yeah, it's but true. It, but it, it, it can totally feel like that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you remember um, feeling more feeling a weight lifted or more relaxed in your body when your when your friend rallied around you? For sure. 
I absolutely did. I mean, it was, and it, and I had taken a course at, um, I was at UC Santa Barbara, and they had this human sexuality course that was like famous, and there was, you know, this couple, this heterosexual couple that taught the course, and they talked about rape, and they said, if you say no once, it's rape, and I'd never heard that before. Like, I wasn't raised being taught those things, and I was like, it was like revolutionary, and I still couldn't fight off the internalized, you know, toxic shame I had about the situation, but I had the intellectual concept and context to kind of place what happened to me in it. Isn't that amazing, the disconnect between the intellect and the, and the emotion that you can know it fits the criteria, but emotionally you can't let your... Do you think that's an evolutionary protective me- mechanism of some sort? It's a really good question. I think it's um, it's a defense mechanism. So yeah, these defense mechanisms are developed to keep us surviving, especially when we're younger and we're so powerless. But they become our enemies when we get older. It really does. I heard somebody in my support group one time say our uh, coping mechanisms as children became our character defects as adults. It's exactly it. And you can't survive as a child without developing those because especially if you're in these you know, really unconscious environments, which is mm-hmm. really what they are. These parents, most of most parents mean well, for sure, you know, mm-hmm. um, but they're unconscious and they haven't dealt with their own trauma, mm-hmm. you know, and their parents didn't deal with their trauma and so on and so on and so on. So it's passed down, gets down, passed down through the DNA culturally and through the family systems, you know, and then every family is just doing all this unconscious traumatizing shaming unhealthy stuff it's like it's like water rolling down a hill it it really has to be a concerted effort i think to to stop it it's yeah it really does and you know not everybody wants to do this work Mm. you know it's like it's scary it's hard it's scary confusing it's It's non-linear it's not letter. It's there's no guarantee that you're still not gonna have bad days you know or bad weeks or you know that kind of thing but um I, uh, for me personally, and, and, and as a therapist and helping people, I think there's nothing greater than actually really working on yourself. It's um, nothing greater. The sense of meaning and purpose from um, connecting to other human beings through our past trauma, finding a way of dealing with it and sharing that with other people is... uh, I'm at a loss for words to, to try to try to pick it up if you can. No, it's true. Yeah, no, it's 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 such a good point you're making. It's like the only people that I really have in my life are can have those conversations. Yeah, are safe enough and you know evolved enough. And I don't mean that in a hierarchical sense. Just like they have taken that red pill is what I like to say. It's a it's a language. It, yeah, it's, it's a language, and it's you cut to the chase. You're not like talking about the weather, what you did that day, so much. You know, oh, yeah. uh, you're talking about what what's really going on in my inner world. Like, what am I dealing with today or this week or what have you? And and how am I growing? And how am I changing? And how am I experiencing that? And how am I fighting the urge to escape? Mm-hmm. For me, that's that's such a often th- 
the conversation. Somebody asks me how I'm doing. And a lot of times I don't even know because there's kind of a, um, a low level numbness that I grew up with for so much of my life that I often have to go to what did I do today to get the clues as to how it is I'm feeling. Uh Oh, I got up at noon and I went back to bed at three and slept for another three hours. I, you know, I think I might be a little depressed or I might be uh, a little terrified of my life overwhelming me. Um, it's, it's, how do, how do we begin for those of us who grew up feeling numb or having our emotions negated how do we begin to even know what we're feeling? What do, what is a therapist? How do you guide somebody in that? Well, there's two things that I think are really, really helpful. Um, you know, and they both kind of, they, they both, uh, need mindfulness. So whether you're going to end up meditating or not, it's fine, you know, but the mindfulness is really kind of landing in your body. So it's taking two or three moments, minutes, moments, or what have you to sit and take those really deep breaths that everybody talks about because the breath is really a way to connect to what's mm. going on inside. And then sit there and just land in your body. A lot of us are not in our bodies most of the time. And this world we live in you know, really supports that. So, And it's not an easy place to be. So we pop out all the time because it's like, who wants to be in here, right? So, um, but if you take that mindfulness action and you just do it and then you kind of check in, you know, and if you're more of a thinker and it's harder to to access a feeling, you might want to find out what area of your body feels heavier, you Mm. know, or what area of your body feels lighter. And then if you really sit still with that, you'd be surprised what your self will tell you. And so what might yourself tell you that you're feeling anxiety in your chest you're feeling exactly right because if you feel if you sit there and you're like your your chest feels tight and then you just sit in that tightness for a little bit of time that actually might move it a little bit and then under that you might feel kind Mm. of some electricity Mm. and then you might go okay i'm actually anxious about what this week looks like and I don't feel like dealing with it. So I'm trying to shut down from it, but that's not going to serve me. So if you have a client who comes in and they've experienced sexual trauma and they're really dissociated uh, from their body, is that one of the first things you do or do you get them talking about their story or is it d- differ for it's each different person? It's for each person and depending on how much work they've done before, if any, and if not... Um, the most important thing first is to create a safe space and to let them begin to experience that you're a safe person and that you're going to stay that way. I always um, say that one of the most underrated things in a therapist is their eye contact and their facial expressions. Because mm-hmm. man, true. when we're when we're terrified or when I'm terrified. Um, in therapy that those first couple of sessions or at least skeptical right um, yeah I'm just constantly looking for 
a face that I might interpret as judging me. Right. And, exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So one creating of, that space. One right? of the first psychiatrists I ever saw, I told her, you know, all of the stuff that was going on with me internally. And I kid you not, she's jotting notes down. And I caught her rolling her eyes like, oh, my God, this guy's. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. So I went and saw a different psychiatrist uh, oh, after that. But Look, but see I, how resilient you were just right away. It's I like, found I'm it out funny. of here. I good. found it funny. Okay, good. Yes. Yeah. Because I was like, the comedian in me was like, oh, I got a new bit. <laughs> I got a new bit. <laughs> you did get a new bit. Yeah. Oh, my God. People funny. always... Um, Ask me, a listener is, will email and say, I'm looking for a new therapist. You know, how do I know if it's a good fit? And the only thing I can think to say is, is what you said is that you feel safe, mm-hmm. you feel heard, mm-hmm. and you feel like you can, you can open up there. Yeah. Um, how, what if it's, how does somebody know when it's something with them about being afraid to open up? And so if you create that, you know, that relationship with your therapist and you know that that person is consistent and non-judgmental and safe and empathic but also going to call you on your stuff mm-hmm. you know they're not going to just let you get away with everything and they're and they're and i think what's really important is they're engaged with you like mm-hmm. i've speaking spoken to a lot of people this is very anecdotal you know mm-hmm. it's not uh, science here that I've gathered, but have said, gosh, when I had the therapist that just nodded and never said anything, I found myself not getting anything out of it. And I said, I completely agree. At this point, at this day and age, you've got to find someone mm. that's going to be giving you something, you know, talking to you and engaged with you. So as long as all of that's going on, then you have a chance to kind of figure out whether it's, you know, what's going on with you. Yeah. What part of it is you? And, you know, what are your patterns? I mean, we have to figure out our patterns. You know, for me, when I realized that I had some issues with love and relationships and romance and and, and ended up, you know, identifying as a love and fantasy addict, I was the most consistent person in my story as far as, I mean, (laughs) these faces and these people and these women changed, but... And they were all crazy stories, but I was, I was always You were the me. common denominator. And I went, okay, here's a pattern. You know, I have to look at that. I can sit there and I can find everything wrong with what happened with that person or what she did or what have you, but you, I've got to look at me. Yeah. yeah. I've got to look at me. And so you want to have somebody that you know, you may have a shame attack even with your therapist, right? After you tell them something. Mm-hmm. But that if that is a great therapist for you, they're going to help you not feel that shame for very long. Just like a good friend would. A good friend tells exactly. you the truth in a yes. way that's diplomatic and loving. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's get back to, to your story. When did you uh, realize that you were gay? Or well, lesbian. I, what, what, do, I, do you prefer go, a term? I prefer lesbian. Okay. When yeah. did you know? Um, well, I first came out as bisexual in high school. And I was sort of like, yeah, let's have some fun. It's all good. And then I was actually terrified of lesbians. So, um, What do you think that was about? I call it my internalized lesbian phobia. So that's um, a concept meaning in in... LGBTQ affirmative therapy, we call it like in the internalized phobias. So the world is phobic, right? It's lesbian, it's lesbian phobic, it's homophobic, it's transphobic, it's biphobic. Then you internalize those messages. So the idea is it's not because something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with society. They gave you all these 
horrible messages, you internalize them and they start they start talking to you as if it's about you. So I was terrified because I... Terrified of the act of being with a woman or terrified of identifying? All of it. Wow. All of it. Yeah. Every single bit of it. And um, that's not uncommon at all. You know, it's, it's a, the act of coming out can be so scary. Would it be, would it be scary in your fantasies? When no. you would sexually fantasize? No, it wasn't scary that was safe. in that. Yes, that was safe. That was safe. It was when it became real. Talk about the first time if you're comfortable. Well, I just remember the first, you know, and this was, but the first lesbian bar I walked into, I was so scared that I had to drink a lot and I still was afraid, afraid of being rejected, afraid of not being accepted, afraid That's of being hilarious. too femme, afraid of, you know, all of this stuff. Because I, back then, I mean, I've always been a femme. I'm, I'm, I identify as a femme, right? And I was like, you know, I, I'm too feminine to be a lesbian. Like, you know, I didn't know our history. I didn't know there was tons of the butch femme whole piece of our history. I didn't know any of this stuff. So I was like, I didn't see myself mirrored. You know, when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, a lesbian had a certain stereotypical look. So there was no one, there was no Portia Rossi coming out marrying Ellen, saying, here's a femme that's, you know, doing great. I, I can't imagine, uh, for those listeners that haven't seen uh, uh, Lauren's picture on the website, um, beautiful. Yeah. And... Uh, it just it made me laugh. You're talking about going in there, with, you know, being anxious. It's like uh, everybody should be so lucky as to uh, walk into a bar. Um, you know, anyway, Thank I hope that you. wasn't. Uh, no, not at okay. all. I appreciated it. Okay. I always right. I appreciate okay. it. Yeah, it's it was all my stuff, you know, and I, I, I didn't grow up with a mother who supported me. Like mm -hmm. she did in a lot of ways. She really wanted me to be independent and be different than herself who was dependent on a man. And, you know, and I, I was, you know, excited to go and have a career and all that kind of stuff. But, she, you know, she was not a confident woman in her own right. And she was very uncomfortable with sex. My mm -hmm. mother, very like if sex came on a TV show or something, the whole room got really tense. And really weird. And, you know, I was tuned into her. So I'd be like sitting mm -hmm. there going, oh, God, when's this scene going to be over? This and did your so parents ever have the talk with you? I think there. I had a talk when I was really, really young, and that was it. Yeah. I mean, it was really, you know, I'm talking like the quintessential wasps where you just don't even talk about mm -hmm. sex or anything, you know. Or, and What's um, the, What state were you raised in, did you say? Uh, I came, I was grew up in New Jersey. Okay. We came to California when I was... Uh, 16. Okay. So, um, yeah, just, you know, all of those mixed messages and just, you know, it was, it was a period of time where there was still a lot of sexism. You know, I, I, I recently looked back at a movie, I think, I don't know, it was a movie from the early nineties and it was like such a good reminder of what I grew up with. You know, it was, um, oh, it was the working girl and she's mm -hmm. trying to get ahead and she keep you know some guy gets her in a limo and he's like yeah 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 i'll give you an interview for a job here do some blow with me and then we'll go to the hotel and, da, 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 da. and i was like that was the world i was living in at the time you know growing up in so it was a really rough environment 
and it's so different now, so it's easy to forget, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, that that is really a great way to time travel, is look at what was considered funny uh, in, a, in a movie. Yeah. it's It can be really shocking. Really shocking. Yeah. Yeah. The things that they would do back then, and, and I remember watching movies and feeling shame for being a woman during with some of the things that they would do in a movie, and it was like... You know, it's horrendous. Um, so I, 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 you know, I didn't have the talk. I didn't have any of that support. Um, you know, I used alcohol and drugs to compensate and make me feel stronger and more confident than I really, really felt inside. And are you a sober person? I'm days? sober. I have okay. 17 years of sobriety. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was that was the, the first game changer. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was for me too. It's yeah. like I, I wouldn't, and I always tell people when that you know if they'll email me, I got this going on, this going on, this going on, and I drink too much. I always say, work on the drinking first because if you don't Bingo. get that addiction out of the way, you're gonna have a real hard time making headway in anything else. Yeah, is yeah. there anything you'd like to add to? No, that it to has that? to start there. Yeah. It has to start there. It's also the most deadly in that you can die on alcohol you can die and there's a heroin epidemic right now and an opiate epidemic and these things are deadly so it's it's not a joke yeah you know sorry i just hit the thing oh that's okay it's okay (laughs) um so you have to get that out of the way because that really actually helps you wake up because Mm -hmm. you know any addiction makes us unconscious, right? I mean, you can overeat and you can get numbed out. You can be deep in sex and love addiction and be completely numbed out in certain ways. But if you're using drugs and alcohol, you are out of it. And you don't know that you're numb because yeah. it's your normal. Yeah. And that's the thing. When you when you get some space between you and whatever that monster is, uh, you suddenly start feeling your feelings. And boy, you better have some coping mechanisms because now you're really feeling them. Yeah, and, you and uh, you know, I mean, support systems are so important at this time. You know, anytime you're getting sober from any addiction, mm-hmm. whatever it is, you mm-hmm. know, it's like the support systems, you know, from your therapist to whatever outside support group you are into, mm-hmm. you know, whether, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm really big into saying it doesn't just have to be 12 steps at this point, because... That doesn't work for everybody. And some people can go in there and take what they need and leave the rest. And some people, it's too activating. Mm. You know, maybe they have a religious trauma and the God part is too activating. So um, there's a lot of other things out there today that I think are really important to look into. Do you have a list of resources on your website? I do. What's your your website? It's uh, www.drlaurencostine.com. And uh, L-A-U-R-E-N-C-O-S-T-I-N-E. Uh, let's go back to uh, you going into that bar the first time. Okay. So I just, I think I got really, really drunk. <laughs> I don't remember much. I would have friends that would take me to the bars and, you know, kind of help me um, be more comfortable. Um, it, it just, it took the longest time. I mean, it just really took the longest time. So then I moved to Japan to um, actually do some modeling at the time. And I just, I really wanted to get away from the, the cooking culture I was stuck in in New York City. And I thought, oh, I pulled a geographic. There's no, I've heard there's no drugs in Japan. I'm going to get over there. Of course there were, but not as much. So I met my first girlfriend there. This was in my 20s. She was from Australia. And we were just really closeted, Paul. 
Really closeted. She was super closeted to her parents. I was closeted to my parents. So we just pretended to them that we were friends, even though we lived in a studio together with one bed. <laughs> and um, we pretended to the rest of the Japanese culture, except for our close friends, that we weren't together. I mean, it was crazy. So you wouldn't hold hands in public? Oh, no, 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 no. Never. When was the first time you kissed a woman in public? I would say... Hmm... 15 years ago. What did it feel like and what was the chatter in your head, if any? Well, I have to say by then I had done a lot of work on my internalized lesbian phobia. I had become an activist. I had fallen in love with the idea of being myself. And now I was proud. And so my feeling then was, screw you if you, don't, if you can't take it. It's your problem, not mine. And that was a huge turning moment in my life. And I remember even saying that to my mom because I had really stayed closeted for her. She was very homophobic, very lesbian phobic and, and never accepted my what, sexuality. What are some of the things you have heard your mom say about um, lesbians? Or well, gays. she caught me kissing a girl when I was 18. And I remember I was pretty young over but I came downstairs and she said to me you sure you want to try out for a sorority the way you are that's what came out of her the mouth that morning I didn't even want to be in a sorority I was going to do it for my grandmother I was not interested <laughs> and I looked at her and I mean I it was devastating that she would say something like like I was a, a predator Wow. You know, like I was going to be like a danger to those girls. A wolf like, in sheep's clothing. Yeah, like she was more worried about the other women than she was about her own daughter. So, and then, um, you know, when I did come out, she cried and made it about herself and what did she do wrong and all this stuff. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff I had to deal with. And were you at that point enlightened enough to know that she was completely off base or did some of that get a hold of you some of it got a hold of me talk about that really hard i just really she had a hold on me she was her opinion was really important to me for a very long time i i i think it was very much that codependency you were talking about earlier i could not bear hurting her feelings or disappointing her or making her unhappy had, and had you been kind of groomed to do that as a child? The whole house was. How had had how did she present herself um, that led to people wanting to take care of her emotions? What 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 were the outward manifestations of the things? Did she present herself as fragile? Um, fragile and angry. Mm-hmm. That's that. That seems to be a really, really common one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was very fragile, but she was also angry yeah. and mad a lot, you know. And so we'd all be like, "Oh God, don't you know? Don't mm -hmm. make her mad." And I think really important concept that I'm going to be talking a lot, a lot more in my next book is about how, as a lesbian, born as a lesbian. As opposed to? Well, I mean, I just say that because there's a postmodern fight that we're not born this way. And I believe that we are born this way. So, you know, I like to kind of say that that's how I feel. Mm -hmm. um, we are women-centric, you know. We're 
we're drawn to our same sex in general, friendships and lovers and mm. everything. For the most part, we want to be around each other. So you mean all women or lesbians? Lesbians. Okay. I mean. Yeah. So okay. women too, but lesbians in a in a certain particular kind of way. So your mom is the first one you meet like that. So you love. So we love our moms. Our moms are so important in this really deep way. And then you go through that kind of sexual development piece and they're, you know, kind of mixed up in that as well. So we lesbians can have, I mean, be so, um, what's, what am I trying to say? So, um, controlled by their moms. I must be a lesbian. <laughs> you probably are. You're a heterosexual man, right? Yes. So then you would have been that way with your mom. Yeah. Do you see this? To see the dynamic is mm -hmm. the same thing. Very much so. I think a lot of men, um, especially if their mom presents themselves, uh, presents herself as fragile. Um, there's something either genetically or societally in us as men that says, I have to protect the female. Yeah. And that turns out to be your mom. Yeah. And when then you, you know, marry or date somebody who will occasionally show something that happens to be similar to that. And it's so triggering. Uh -huh. Exactly. It's so triggering. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Have you experienced that in your relationships where you're dating, quote, your mom? Yes. Many times. Talk about that. <laughs> many times. <laughs> Um, I, my mom was basically available and unavailable. So she was sometimes really wonderful and loving and fabulous and, and made me feel really good. And then she could be really unavailable or kind of rejecting or cold or mean. Mm -hmm. Did she or have, scary. A, did she have an addiction or a personality mm. disorder or anything? Yeah. The, she, I think she might've had a little bit of a personality disorder. Okay. She had no addiction. Okay. Yeah. Um, she, so that's the kind of women that I would pick. Mm -hmm. So from in my, especially deep in my love addiction, it was, um, you know, the catch and release kind. I gotcha. Now I'm gone. And what would be the trigger to want to leave? For them? For you. No. Well. Or would they usually leave? They would usually leave. They would leave. And I, would, I would pick ones that would. Or emotionally unavailable. Mm -hmm. Once the honeymoon wore off. I see. So really, really in. Things look great. And things are going to be awesome. Would you, would it be fair to use the word on, on their part that you were a conquest? Yes. What does that feel like? Horrible. Because I would naively trust them. And then you would feel objectified after they left or while? Yeah. Yeah. Or like... You know, just how can you promise all these things and and seem so sincere and you can't sustain it? And what, if any, was your part in these relationships? I think once I saw them leaving, I would get more frantic. I would get angry. I would get... Um, Needy? Yeah. In a way, yeah, that kind of way, like, absolutely. Like, you know, 
you met my needs for a while or you were so available for a while, why are you gone now? Mm -hmm. Like what happened, what happened, what happened? And get kind of frantic inside. Yeah. Would that franticness be expressed outwardly or was it just what? Mostly inside, but if, if it kept, feeling like a rejection over and over again yes and then it would be you can only hide that for so, so long, long before the person is like yeah. they've asked me the same question 10 times in an hour yeah 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 exactly um what what other uh what are the other issues that you find um coming up in uh, let me ask you this give us some hallmarks of love addiction um and and let me know any that are particular to a lesbian. Okay, community. so um, uh, intensity is mistaken for intimacy. That's a big one. Is that and, for everybody? I think that's for everybody. But then you've got this combination of this oxytocin fast and mm-hmm. this this wired, you know, mm-hmm. to connect. Mm-hmm. And what's the what, how's the joke go? Uh, what did two lesbians drive on their second date? Bring to a second date. Bring to a second date. A U-Haul. <laughs> So, of course, I've done that. <laughs> Seriously? Well, no. Practically. Not, not literally, but practically, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, and there's no dating. There's not... And it, it's also kind of sanctioned within the community. You know, you don't really date and kind of take your time and stuff. If that spark is there, man, it is on. You know, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen with all love-addicted kind of relationships, but with, with lesbians, it's like there's, there's no one watching. So, like, yeah. You practically start spending every night together and, you know. It must be so, uh, I don't even know what the word is, but um, just like uh, fireworks, just a, a rocket ship. It is. It is so intense. I can't even tell you. And then if you're the, you know, if you're an addict type, it is amazing. You're like... You're high as a kite. I don't want to be anywhere else. Right. And these are from the, this is all coming from inside your own body. You're not ingesting this. You don't have to take anything to feel this way. Suddenly your body creates this on its own. It's like, wow. And you think it's really all about that person. Yeah. You think you've met your soulmate that, you know, this is destiny. The best thing in the whole world has happened to you. Like you can't even believe how great and lucky you are. And you know, and, and, and it's really because your brain is just, you know, high flooded, as a kite. Yeah. Flooded. Flooded with yeah. this really amazing stuff. Um, before we go back to that one, because I have some more. Well, let me ask you the, the questions about this one. Then, How do you know whether um, in the first couple of dates, what is healthy from what is unhealthy and addictive? So... Well, now with the texting and the phone and, you know, like, you know, what if you start... What's unhealthy? Starting to text all the time. Count your texts. Yeah, count them, you know? I think if, I think if you are in the first week of dating somebody and you have texted each other back and forth more than 25 times, that's a red flag. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. And I like to just get real cautious because one of the things I think that happens is in this kind of situation with lesbians it's like so you've jumped into this relationship you didn't date at all you don't know this person and when that honeymoon stuff wears off which it inevitably always does you know they found science has found the longest has lasted two years really for that for those 
chemicals to be made. Lesbians burn it out way faster than that, though, because it's, you know they're going through it so fast. Um, you kind of wake up and you haven't spent any time figuring out if you guys even get along or if you have anything in common. And suddenly you're staring at somebody and it's like, I don't know who this person <laughs> is. And you could be living with them, you know? So it's... Um, and I would imagine when it goes downhill, it goes downhill fast. Very fast. And it's terrifying. And it is so painful. And in the book, there's a couple diagrams. I have a diagram on how the merging actually happens. How, you know, because, mm. you know, it's the urge to merge. So how that merging happens, how in that sense of merging, the sense of self completely goes away. It was fragile to begin with, if you are a love addict anyway, and then, you know, it falls away and then you don't want to, you don't want to ever, you want to agree on everything and you want everything to just stay super yummy, right? And then what happens when it starts to fracture and this kind of spiral that starts to happen. And then in that case, you kind of get the addict and the avoidant. And that dance starts to happen, right? The one's pulling in, the one's pulling away, and what kind of spiral starts to happen. And so a lot of times in, in I know in all relationships, but particularly in lesbian lover relationships, you know, the spiral will happen, the couple will break up because it's unbearable, then they can't handle with the withdrawals, so they'll get back together. Mm-hmm. And then they'll go through the whole cycle again. And this can happen many times, you know, four or five times a spiral can start, can keep going and going yeah. and going. And and especially um, w- with love addicts who have a deep fear of being alone. Yes, exactly. So you got, you've got that drug withdrawal coupled with. Yes, yes. That fear, who am I? Yes. If- and if heartbreak is a is a really human withdrawal, and then you've got the withdrawal from the love addiction piece, right? The, the addicted mm-hmm. to the person, you know, possibly the twenty five texts a day, whatever it was you've done to stay like uber connected. That's unrealistic and not healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, also, with lesbians, friendships fall away, you know, and both can kind of get really stuck in just kind of relying on each other. Mm-hmm. And I really do believe it takes a village to raise a relationship. So, you know, this is very dangerous. And so the next thing you know, you're your best friend, your lover, your everything. And then you don't have anybody else kind mm. of giving you sort of outside perspective or helping you process the scary stuff that is coming up that needs attention. How um, how do you feel about the, the show The L Word? Oh, oh, I thought it was fantastic actually so you feel like it was an accurate uh, representation no oh, okay um yes and no okay. i mean it was it it didn't have any butch lesbians it didn't have enough women of color it just had beautiful you lipstick. know women lipstick is a lipstick les- lesbian yeah. is that is that an yeah. offensive term no i okay. i don't think so i call myself more of a femme but yeah okay. it's it's totally fine um so it wasn't accurate in that representation at all. It got a lot of, and you know, important flack for that. And it's, a, you know, it was a problem. And there was no butch lesbians. There was no real androgynous lesbians. There mm. was kind of a couple, one at the end. But that's not a representation of our community at all. So that was a big problem. But as far as you know, um, it being super small and 
The love addiction. I mean, Shane is a very real. Did you ever watch it? I watched some episodes. Okay, maybe so there's a, a character in there named Shane, and she was like the hot love avoidant who mm. broke everyone's heart. And she just had women falling all over her. And she was the one that could like walk into a room and the like the room was, was she the one who was very tall with dark hair, kind of cool. No, that now that was a beautiful that was Bet. She was beautiful. Yeah. This was Shane was like she kind of had scraggly hair. She was kind of a rocker. She was a hairdresser. Oh yeah. She was mm-hmm. like but she was the one that was the quintessential love avoidant. She actually left her fiance at the altar. She didn't show up for the wedding. She just disappeared. And so there's this big, huge wedding, and she doesn't show. You know, so uh, it did really, it really portrayed that well. They didn't name it. It didn't have the psychology for that. But like Bet and Tina went to a therapist for a while and even talked about the urge to merge. And so there was some really good things in there as well. And how about its uh, representation of uh, it being a, a really closed system? kind of where you're dating your ex and that person is you know a lot of yes. swapping of yes lovers and yes that's very accurate because okay. there's it's a minority yeah so there's not as many people and it's very it can be very clicky now i know what happens and it happened for me is when you get sober when you are kind of working on yourself and you're no longer going to go hang out at the bars and do all of that kind of stuff, you can lose that community. You know, it's it gets more splintered. It's harder I to find. I bet that's really hard. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, finding new friends after you get sober is, uh, I think that's why it's so important to really throw yourself in when whatever the support group is that you're getting help from. It's a really good place, if it's a good support group, to yes. find new friends. And it, if you don't find a support group, I mean, you just keep looking for something yeah. that works, you know? Some people find people at church. Others, yeah. Maybe it's people that they share a hobby with where it's not centered around drinking or Right, or and there are thankfully more and more lesbian meetups that you kind of can go online and find out about them. And they might go hiking. Mm-hmm. You know, something really cool like that. And, and not necessarily a dating meetup, just a meetup to kind of, because we, we, our community was so built on bars for so long. So that was the only place we could actually get together. And then that has, that's broken up and fallen apart. And, 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 and like we just talked about, that's, that shouldn't be the only way for, for women to get together. So there's also um, new organizations kind of popping up. There's the L Project that I was a part of in the beginning uh, about four years ago, and I haven't been working on it for a while now. It's a nonprofit organization, um, kind of taken off the L word. It's called the L Project. Mm-hmm. And they have, um, you know, like they had an open mic night last Saturday. They, they'll they have some get-togethers and things like that. So they're tr- And they're not drinking oriented. They're culturally and educationally oriented, and kind of just trying to get women together, not not around alcohol. Mm-hmm. Kind of get us out of that yeah. trend and that. Um, so give me some more uh, hallmarks of love addiction. So um, the spiral piece is a really important part, um, and then so the love avoidant and and look. I think what's really important part of talking about these kind of categories is not getting too binary, right? Because I've been love avoidant and I've been a love addict, but I I tend towards the love addict, but I've been a love avoidant and I can be ambivalent too. And do you you think they're both about fear (coughs) and intimacy? Absolutely. 
talk about that. And an intimacy disorder. Yes. Right. So it's really ultimately an intimacy disorder. And, and, and in many ways, even using the word love is not accurate because it's not love. I agree. And I, and I think a couple of the articles that I've written about this, I've said, look, I know that this can be sort of activating this term love addiction. It's, 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 it's hard to take in because it isn't about love in that moment. I mean, when you break it down, and when I did all the research and I looked at it from all these scientific kind of perspectives, we were talking about chemicals and, you know, all of these kind of way we're wired. It wasn't about really finding out about somebody and, and getting that depthful, real love that embraces everything about them, including the stuff that you're not going to like so much having know? difficult conversations difficult conversations disagreeing diplomatically not getting all your needs met and how do you f- how do you compromise that you know how do you find the compromise how do you um figure out how to have those hard conversations how to ask for what you need how to tr- resisting the urge to change somebody's flaws mm-hmm. because you can't imagine living with those for the rest of your life yes Exactly. Or if you felt really out of control as a child, then you have control stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So you tend to be the type that wants to control. Uh, lesbians have a lot of issues with jealousy, a lot of jealousy. We do. We are friends with our exes often. I'm not friends with all of my exes because, you know, really hardcore love addiction ones, I was like, You can't be. Go right? away. Just, yeah. I don't. I don't ever need to see you again. But and, that, um, and that's not necessarily because of that specific person. It's more that it's the the chemistry of love addiction that it's triggering. And it was a very traumatizing relationship. Okay. Traumatizing relationship. Very. You know. Just very toxic and unhealthy. Mm-hmm. So, I would say that. Um, uh, you know, you just. Oh, I lost my train of thought. Where were we? Um, we were talking about oh intimacy, intimate intimacy disorder. Um, that uh, true intimacy, uh, having difficult conversations uh, with people. Um, I always get my guests off track. <laughs> There's so many. Uh, so many questions pop into my mind that I just I'm so sorry (laughs) Um, oh friends with exes jealousy oh yeah 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 so so we are friends with our exes and it's actually a beautiful part of our community too because you can really be friends with an ex and there's when there's no romantic anything there and have this kind of it's she can become a part of your chosen family. That must also give you clarity on your love addiction because you can realize, oh, I was putting this person on a pedestal mm-hmm. before, and now I just see them for who they really are, which is just another flawed person trying to get through their life. Who I I really adore as a friend. Yeah. You know, like, they're a great friend, and I'm glad we figured that out, you know. And then if you can get, if you get into your next love, kind of love-addicted relationship... Your new girlfriend can be jealous of the the ex, mm. even though there's nothing to be jealous of. And <laughs> that kind of controlling stuff can be mm. really problematic. Is domestic violence an issue in the lesbian community? It's much more so than people would think. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me, I have this dry throat. 
It's a lot more, and it's not taken as seriously by the police as it should be. <coughs> so, excuse me, you can be having a a very serious fight between two women in their home, and the police will just come to the door and be like, whatever. So, one of the things I really respect about <coughs> the LGBT Center in Los Angeles is they have a domestic violence uh, department within their mental health department. They have groups. <coughs> and they really address the issue head on. And, of course, there's a love addiction component in that. Oh, my God, yes. You know? Yeah. A big one. And I'm not sure if that is dealt with as directly as it should be. Because How do, how do you mean? Well, what I found by writing this book and really getting into love addiction in, in the uh, LGBTQ community, it is not well known at all. This is kind of a funny story. Uh, domestic violence or love addiction? Love addiction. Okay. So, and I'll get back to the domestic violence. So, when I first started the book, I named it The Urge to Merge. And, you know, that was in my file in my computer, and that was the name of the book. <clears throat> the only time I argued really with the publisher was around the title, and they were like, look, this is, we want lesbian love addiction. We want the Google search to happen, da 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 da. So then I ended up, you know, doing some SEO stuff afterwards when it got mm. published, and no one's searching, no, oh, sorry, no one's searching lesbian love addiction. <laughs> they don't know it exists or not. So <laughs> they insisted on this title that no one even puts into the Google search engines. It's like, yeah. so, you know, so I didn't get my creative title. But. Maybe your book will be the thing that sparks. Yeah, hopefully. So we're getting it out there in other ways, getting the information out there in other ways so that people can start to understand that this really exists and in our community exists in higher numbers. I don't have the stats for that yet because there's no study. Mm -hmm. But imagine with the trauma and the propensity between the brain and the chemicals and then we have higher rates of addiction. That is a statistic number that we have as far as drugs and alcohol go. Our rates are much higher than the heterosexual community because of our trauma. That there's a lot of love addiction in our community. And bonding over being outsiders. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So there's a lot of love addiction. And so, um, uh, but it's not known. I mean, Paul, it's just not known yet. This is a very new concept. So are they going to be teaching that in their you know, domestic violence uh, programs across the country? Not necessarily. I would think, you know, please email me if there is a program that's doing both at the same time. I would be thrilled. Whenever uh, I meet somebody who... Is, is a love addict and is just kind of starting to realize that they might be and they're just you know what like a love the first time you meet somebody who's who's a love addict who is just starting to navigate the the waters of of healing how they just talk non-stop about, about that person yes and you try to tell them this isn't about them but they're, they can't. They're not there yet. Talk talk about that. Well, I remember the first time that um, I started to get in touch with being a, a love addict. And I had just broken up with... I have two qualifiers, by the way. I mean, mm -hmm. it really took me a long... It took me a tell, long time to get down. Tell our folks what a qualifier is. Oh, okay. So a qualifier is the person that um, 
you're in a relationship, a love addicted relationship with that wakes you up to the fact that you have this, this addiction. So my first qualifier, um, I had an on again, off again relationship with her for 14 years. And there was a six year time period where we didn't talk at all. And then she came back. And um, who was the avoidant? She okay. was. Okay. So, um, and I kept taking her back. So, um, the first time that I really left and started looking, saying, what's my problem? What's going on here? Got some books, started talking to some of my friends. There was a, a friend of mine, or actually my friend's wife, and all I could talk about was my qualifier. I mean, I that's all I could talk about. And she was just like, it's not, can we talk about something else? And I was like, no, I can't. Like, I can't, you know, I... And I needed to talk about her for like the next three months. And do you find uh, that chemicals are released just from talking about yes. the person? Yes, there are so, I, uh, without a doubt, it's part of the healing process and it's part of the withdrawal. Yeah, um, it's it's almost like a way of um, hanging out. With, it's the second best thing to hanging out with that person in the mind of the love addict. They probably don't consciously realize that that's what they're doing. And also another thing that is really important to understand is when we, when our hearts are broken, it is like to the central nervous system, which is connected to our emotional brain. And then, you know, it's such an important part of like our whole entire body. Um, and it's it's our up regulator and our down regulator, and it has a big part of how we actually like ex, you know experience peace and calm, especially with the parasympathetic nervous system. Heartbreak is experienced like a broken leg in the central nervous system. So the person that just broke your leg and your you know broke your central nervous system, you know you're going to talk about that accident for a long time. I, I mean, would imagine a, too, because you're you're feeling the pain at that all, at that moment, and how do you not all the time, right? And the brain is just obsessing about that person until it doesn't. And one of the things I love to tell anybody that I'm helping heal from this or helping go through it, I promise you one thing. I can promise you, this will stop one day. I don't know when it will happen for you. Everybody's different. Might be days, might be weeks, might be might months, be, might, might, might be, be years. But one day, you will be on the other side of this, and there will be a liberation that you have never known. And would it be fair to say that the time it takes to get over that is directly relatable to how much inner work you do? Yeah, and I think how traumatizing the relationship was because um, really, really traumatizing relationships really maybe where you completely trusted this person and then they absolutely just like left and were fine. You know, that can be so, I mean, that can be so devastating. That can really take a long time. Are those usually connected to some type of abandonment from childhood or is it... I think it's unrelated. also just being human. Okay. To be honest with you, for sure it's abandonment, but it's also what what do you find are the most uh common childhood uh issues or events that you see in love addicts? Um 
be they uh, lesbians or otherwise? It depends on really the the attachment style. So that I actually lay, lay that out in the book um, around what attachment style did your main caretaker have, usually your mother, right? Um, influences the kind of attachment style you have. So if your mother was an anxious person who was kind of a helicopter mom that kind of hovered over you and sort of got her emotional needs met through her children can create a lot of avoidant children mm-hmm. and avoidant adults. The um, avoidant mothers, the ones that are less available or are either available than not available, they can create more anxious attachment. Needy, mm-hmm. obsessive. Yes. And and afraid of abandonment, really afraid of abandonment. And, and, and talk about, you know, to, to the outside observer you would think that the love addict wants intimacy but talk about the the, the misnomer right. of it's, that it's yeah because neither person can handle real intimacy neither types of styles can really handle it because it's an intimacy disorder so as soon as the anxious person really gets the intimacy that they're longing for they can flip and become an avoidant and one of the things i think is a really nice way of putting it is it's relationship dependent you know it really depends on what's going on Mm -hmm. either in the relationship the same relationship because there can be power differentials or you can be in the need you know you can be the one asking for all the love for a couple months and then the tables switch and you're the one not wanting it and you're feeling like you're getting too much and smothered and all of that kind of stuff. So, or you can, you know, be avoidant in one relationship and more uh, addicted in the next one. So it really does depend, but most of us do kind of adhere to a certain style um, and tend towards picking the ones that are the opposite of us. Mm -hmm. That's usually what happens. Talk about uh, some more hallmarks of love addiction. So um, never being serial monogamy, like never being without a relationship. Would Um, that be called fear of being alone as well? Yes, absolutely. And and, and no awareness around this, Mm -hmm. you know, um, desperation to find somebody going on every dating site and being on all the online shows and going to all the meetups or whatever and just constantly, constantly looking but never finding anybody. Dating somebody you don't even like? Dating someone you don't even like. That happens. Or you get into the relationship and you realize you don't like them and you don't know how to leave and you stay. Being in a relationship that you've wanted to get out of and you stay in it for 10 years longer than you would have wanted to. And you just keep putting it off. Do you experience that? I, I've, I've worked with folks that have, oh, okay. have done that. Yeah. Um, uh, talk about the fantasy component of um, love addiction. I think that's such an good. I'm so glad you brought that up. I actually do identify as a love and fantasy addict myself. And... I'm a total fantasy addict. Are you? Oh, you know, and it's not just limited to uh, sex and love. Mostly it's uh, drama, trauma, 
the past, the future. I have such difficulty uh, being present. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. To catastrophize things in my head. I mean, to the point of, you know, uh, 50 years down the road, you know, I can imagine the the bottle I'm drinking from, from the only available quart of water for hundreds of miles around because climate change has made things and the type of gun I'm fighting marauders off with and what the car, the dirt on the car because we've been traveling through the desert. I mean. Right. Mad Max, you mean. Yes. I mean, (laughs) that's why I I love Mad Max. I was like, oh, I get to see what the future looks like. This is where we're going. But go ahead. Talk about fantasy. You said that last night on the show. Yeah. We're going in this direction. Um, So I think it, you know, for everybody, it's different, but what it looks like for you, it's a good thing to figure out what that is. Like, um, are you, you meet, you meet another woman at a party if you're a lesbian and, you know, you've already married her and you see the house and you see the wedding and you see this happily ever after in your mind two days later or one or two phone calls later, you know, and, and. I think what's really important about that fantasy addiction is that can emit the oxytocin and dopamine too. Just going into that lovely idea of this is the this is this woman is absolutely the answer. That's that's what's such a motherfucker about sex and love addiction is the pharmacies in your head and it's open twenty four hours a day and yeah. you can you can get high by yourself all on your own just sitting there having a good old time. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, right? Yeah, it's amazing. So, um, one of mine was a particularly interesting one. I would get really fixated and it took me a long time to be able to say this out loud because I had a lot of shame about it. Um, I would get really fixated on an actress Mm -hmm. and just watch all her movies and watch some of the movies over and over again and then look her up online and like, um, learn all about her. I didn't want to know too much though, because I really liked how mysterious that she was. You didn't want the was, fantasy. Popped. I didn't want. I, I remember one of them. I learned that they smoked. And man, they just fell really fast. <laughs> like I was like, smoke, yuck, you know. So, um, but I could totally get high just doing that too. So I, mm-hmm. you know, I think us addicts are like chemists, right? We are. It's so good that you said the pharmacy in your head because we're like chemists. We figure out all these different ways to to try to feel really, really, really good. You know? Not just good, but like really good. <laughs> and uh, it's extremely addictive. And um, it's a hard one to break. I mean, this addiction for me took years to break through the layers of denial. I mean, it really did. I'm just so grateful I finally broke through that. Because this... You know, I'm sober from two addictions, right? Mm-hmm. And this one, I mean, the first one woke me up and put me on the path. And I'm so grateful for that. But this one really burst open and just, you know, put me onto the fast track of waking up. I believe intimacy um, disorders can force us to do the deepest work imaginable yeah because i think it's really at our at our core exactly it's the core stuff and and it it has to involve vulnerability i don't think there's any way um talk about the importance of um vulnerability in in healing with an intimacy disorder well i think you know because you are going to the only way to heal is to really admit 
probably the stuff that brings up the most shame possible from whatever it's whatever sexual acting out you did or um the embarrassment that you can't keep a relationship or get a relationship or what have your you know whatever mm -hmm. it is um to all of, you know all of those things you know if you don't get really vulnerable and really honest with it, at least really one honest. person yeah you're who not going to be able to yeah. to heal it mm -mm. you know um yeah, if you go to a support group for love addiction or sex addiction, I mean, it's it's very serious. You know, it's very, um, especially if people are really going through withdrawals. You know, like, that's, people who are going to be very vulnerable. I heard a um, love addict, uh, who's also a recovering heroin addict, say that they would much rather kick heroin than withdraw from an addictive relationship i think it's way harder and it lasts a lot longer heroin addiction when you withdraw from heroin addiction it's over pretty fast like we talked about this mm. can be years of feeling the withdrawals especially because there's so many triggers too right and you are also healing the trauma from your childhood you're not just healing that relationship yeah. that just ended you're healing the core, core, deep stuff that happened when you were young. And would it be fair to say most of that revolves around emotional abandonment? Or abuse. Or abuse. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, shaming, so, which is a form of abandonment, right? Because yeah. each time that they're shaming you, they're abandoning you. Mm -hmm. For sure. Shaming, judging, blaming, you know, um, struggling with, I mean, Raising children is not easy. You There's got no kids. doubt about it. My fiance has kids. Okay. So how many kids? She, she has two boys, mm. and so it's not it's not easy. There is nothing easy about it. But you've got to work on your own stuff so that you can do it really, really well. You know, you have to because um, they'll test you. They're going to test mm. your boundaries. They're going to test your everything. You know. Mm. What are some myths about uh, lesbian sexuality? So, well, there's, a, of course, the famous or infamous lesbian bed death. What? Oh, you haven't heard of it? What is it? Lesbian bed death? No. Oh, okay. So this woman named Pepper Schwartz did a study in the 80s. It's been now seen as flawed. But at the time, she she said that lesbians don't have as much sex and all this kind of stuff and so she coined it lesbian bed death and it stuck it's kind of a horrible uh we know about it though in our community for okay. sure and um you know people have thought well okay there's not as much testosterone in the relationship so it's you know harder to you know who's gonna you know kind of make the move that night or what have you um now they're finding that a lot of long-term relationships have this issue. It's not just lesbians, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, that does happen, and I think it really happens if the intimacy is not dealt with. Mm -hmm. And um, if the couple does not figure out how to repair um, when things go wrong or 
resentments build or needs are not getting met or you're afraid to have those difficult conversations <clears throat> and if you don't have a strong sense of self or you haven't really worked on yourself and learned how to get a voice and as women a lot of us are not been taught how to have a voice or maybe it's too it's done in a way that's not helpful you know because we haven't been taught how to communicate um it's it doesn't you know those conversations can go really badly do you think screaming about the dishes being dirty is a good way to communicate your needs not being met? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'll try something different. <laughs> Isn't it funny how so often, 99% of the time, it's not about the thing? No, it's not. What's the, the, the saying? If it's hysterical, it's historical? Yes. I. That's one of my favorite sayings, actually. And I think the best thing you can do for a relationship is know yourself well enough that even if you don't know it right away, but eventually if you go, wow, something was going on with me, you know, I'm definitely putting something onto my partner right now that's not about her, mm -hmm. you know, and how can I, what can I look at? I found the most helpful thing, and, and there's so many different kinds of therapies out there today that are so amazing and helpful and, and, and change people's lives. But when you are historical, hysterical about something, if you go back to how so a key component in how you were parented, you will find out usually every single time that what you're hysterical about has related to one of those parents, mm. if you had to. That makes sense. Uh, and then you can own it in a way that diffuses it and it goes away. Any other uh, myths? Um, or things that the, the average person may not know? That lesbians have amazing sex. That the sex is incredible. and I would imagine when you know what it feels like, how, how could anything go wrong? <laughs> no, right? <laughs> Growing up in a patriarch culture for so long, though, I think there was this, and especially kind of brass and obnoxious straight men would be like, you know, how can you have sex without a penis? And it's like, there's a lot of things. Yeah. A lot of ways. Well, we to do, do it. okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's really nice that we've kind of moved away from that, I think, mm -hmm. over the years. I don't know, though. I live in a bubble here in Los Angeles. I'm sure they're still making those really horrible and obnoxious and lesbian phobic jokes in other parts of the country. You know, I, I don't live in kind of those environments where I would hear more of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I know it exists. We are mm -hmm. just at the beginning of uh, healing what's happened for the last thousands of years. I mean, the, the, the passage of the Marriage Equality Act was, you know, so important because now we can focus on the trauma and healing the trauma. We don't have to keep putting our money and resources into getting equal rights. What did it feel like that day? Oh, that was amazing. That was amazing. It was, cry. I was crying. I was jumping up and down. I was dancing. Um, I was in shock. Were you afraid that you weren't going to see it in your lifetime? Oh, up until about a year ago, for sure. What was that like? Horrible. I mean, just enraging. 
and raging. It's like, I can't, you know, how can you keep standing in the way of something that you just take for granted and all these people. And it doesn't even affect you. Yeah. It just, it's mind blowing. Yeah. That people have such issues that they, you know, get into other people's business in this way. You have to wonder what's going on with them when they need to do stuff like that. Um, any other myths or things we may not realize? I don't know. I just think... Um, did, did you feel like we covered uh, all of the uh, or most of the important characteristics of uh, love addiction? Yeah, I think we did. I think that... Um, I think we did. I think over over going back and forth over it, I okay. think we did, yeah. If somebody suspects that they're a love addict or they know somebody that could benefit from getting help, where, what should they do? Should they go check out your website? Is, are there books? What do you think of uh, Pia Melody's book, Facing Love Addiction? Okay, so I think it's great. And, um, you know, she was very influential in my research. Mm-hmm. There are a number of people that are influential in my research, but she was influential, especially what she and... Um, her other theorist, and I can't remember his name right now. John had, Bradshaw? No, it was the one that figured out the love avoidant piece. There was, okay. So they came up with this this um, this concept of that these two people find each other all the time. Very, very helpful because that's exactly what happened. So it's in the book. As far as for lesbians, you know, my book is the only one out there that really specifically talks mm-hmm. about this addiction full on and then gives a lot of research about how you know in a diagnostic way meaning this is how it happens and probably why you have this issue and then this is what you can do if you do have this issue these are all the things you can do to get better um so i think i have a i have a a landing page for the book it's called it's www.lesbianloveaddiction.com i've got a lot of blogs on there and um different articles, you know, about other issues that are kind of pertinent to relationships. So people can go on there and find out a bunch of stuff. Um, And it's got, you know, in my book is a lot of different other books about love addiction that I think is really helpful, like Pia Melodies and um, Escape from Intimacy by Anne Schaefe. And um, have you ever read Healing the Shame That Binds by yes. John Bradshaw? So I'm a huge John Bradshaw fan, and I talk I talk about toxic shame in there because mm-hmm. I think differentiating between toxic shame and healthy shame is very very important, very important, and very helpful. Um, so I, I think there's you know, and then there's the support groups that you were talking about. Like there's this outside support groups that I'm mm-hmm. you know. Do you have a list of any of those on your website? Those are on the website. Okay. And um, what else? There's uh, some other radio shows out there right now that are kind of addressing this issue. Um, there's some phone support groups as well. If it's mm-hmm. hard to get to find some outside you mm-hmm. know, uh, meetings in your area, um, you can go and look at the resources mm-hmm. around and then find out some phone 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 and, meetings. And there are therapists um, who Skype now. Yes, there's therapists that And I would Skype. imagine support groups also yes. where people can, yes, can exact, Skype. Yes, 
Exactly. And that's really helping with all the distance stuff, right? And that eye contact so, uh, so important. So important. And then, um, yeah, and then a therapist. And even if, say, therapists are too expensive, I think it's gotten better as far as, you know, most people have insurance today. So that's mm-hmm. one way. But there's also, um, if you live uh, around different universities that have psychology programs, there be counseling centers where you mm-hmm. can go and get some help that way. Okay. Also, Google Lofi therapy in the name of your town or city, and you can find stuff that's sliding scale or sometimes even free. Right. If you've experienced trauma in your uh, lifetime, sexual trauma, doesn't matter how long ago it was, you can contact the Rape and Incest uh, National Network and often find uh, free uh, counseling or support through there. I've, I've gotten feedback from a lot of listeners who've, who've done that and have really started to uh, um, heal. Heal. That's Heal wonderful. It. Yeah. You never, I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to a listener, but never underestimate the damage of um, sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, and whether or not it's prosecutable has nothing to do with its validity. Right. Yeah. Uh, Sounds really important. So great talking to you. Um, talking to you too. Uh, anything else you'd like to share before, uh, before we go? I just, um, I'm so appreciative to your listeners to who tuned in and 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 want are seeking answers. Yeah, yeah. That's and awesome. know they want some. They know there's something different for them out there, you know, and that it's all actually in here. But there's a lot of ways to get that and receive that help. And when you're open and curious, and no longer defensive. It's amazing how amazing what can happen. You'd be amazed how your life can change. I, I always say that one of the best gifts that you can be given is uh, to be a seeker and to be curious. I agree, one hundred percent. Yeah, Lauren, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, many, many thanks to Dr. Lauren Costine. Um, yeah, check her book out. It. Uh, I learned a lot. I love episodes where uh, I think I know everything, <laughs> and then I. I learned shitloads of things, and I realized, oh, yeah, I'm a pompous windbag. Uh, Before I take out some surveys, let's give some love to our sponsors. Um, Today's episode is sponsored by Squarespace, and... It's just such a great product. They've, I, I say it all the time when they advertise on here, but they've been with podcasting since the beginning. They could see the revolution happening before it happened, and I think their product reflects um, their knowledge of the digital world. Um, if you want to design a website or a gallery or you want to host an online store, um, Squarespace is the place to go. I decided to put my uh, pictures of dogs that I've taken and uh, little musical snippets that I've written and uh, put them up on my own Squarespace account uh, just to see how hard it was. And it was not hard. It was super simple. It took me maybe an hour or two to put all of these things up. It's just drag and drop. I found a template that I liked. It's super intuitive. Um, they have 24-hour customer support. Uh, if you if you need them, it's online. It's, it's not phone. Um, and uh, it's just good. It's just all around good uh, thing. In fact, uh, two weeks ago, my my friend uh, Zachary, who was a guest, said he needed to put um, a website together, and I said you should use Squarespace because it's super simple and it's affordable. And uh, next day he called me. He was like, "Dude, couldn't have been easier. I love it." So uh, go check it out. Um, I could I could sit here and 
talk about Squarespace all day, but I think you get the you get what I'm trying to say. So, landing page, gallery, professional blog, online store, whatever whatever it is that you want. And uh, also, you can put media in there. You can put videos, uh, music, uh, whatever. And uh, go do it. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and use offer code MENTAL for 10% off your first purchase. Once again, squarespace.com, offer code MENTAL, and that's 10% off your first purchase. Oh, and if you wanted to check out that uh, the website I put together, it's paul-gilmartin.squarespace.com. Um, yeah, love them. And let me tell you about our uh, our newest sponsor, Blue Apron. I've been hearing about Blue Apron for maybe the last six, nine months. I started with my friend, Brianne, who I would normally see at my Wednesday night uh, support group meetings. And I said, I haven't seen you in a while. Where have you been? And she said, my husband and I started staying in on Wednesday nights and doing this thing uh, called Blue Apron. I was like, what's that? She said, they send you all the food and ingredients you need to make a meal. Uh, and they instruct you on how to do it. And then it's a great way to cook with your loved one or your family and and uh, she said the food's great and the recipes are great so blue apron sent me stuff to try it out so i could talk about it and i love it the ingredients are fresh which is you know the claude man who used to be the chef on dinner in a movie would say over and over again the most important thing in a recipe is the quality of the ingredients and uh, blue apron understands that they understand that it can be intimidating making a recipe uh, that you've never made before. I made I made cod cake sandwiches, which I was like, there's no way I'm gonna be able to pull this off. Her- Herbert hears me talking about food. He's getting he's getting hungry. Um, and they were amazing. I was I was totally surprised. Because here's something you never say to yourself. I can't wait on the way home from work to stop at the grocery store and then cook one of the only five things I know how to make. It's just, it's a great idea. It's beautifully executed. Um, so go to blueapron.com slash mental. That's B-L-U-E-A-P-R-O-N dot com slash M-E-N-T-A-L. Check out this week's menu and you get your first three meals free with free shipping just by going to blueapron.com slash mental. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So if you are wondering how Adderall has been treating me, it has been treating me very well. Um, I just recently switched to the extended release one, which is not as uh, peaky and valley-ish as the, as the instant release ones. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just nice to be able to, to converse. I'm not having any, any side effects, no irritability, no insomnia. Um, nothing, nothing. And, uh, I think my, my wife likes having her husband back interested in conversation at, uh, at dinner. Um, I want to tell you, oh, before I read some surveys, uh, I just want to remind you, if you feel like supporting the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do it. You can go to our website, metalpod.com. You can make a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, become a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. Um, that Ivy does that, that the rattling ever change. That's, that's like a person, uh, sitting on the street and rattling the change in the cup. Uh, she's telling you to let's go kick in. Um, that was worth it. 
That was worth that sidetrack. Uh, I'm starting to sweat now. It's only a matter of seconds until I start rubbing my nipples. Um, you can become a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. Um, you can shop at Amazon through our search portal. We'll get some money from them, and it doesn't add anything to the price of what you're buying. And that's a great way to help the show. And you can help us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice. And a way that really helps, that doesn't cost you anything, is to spread the word about the podcast through social media, to your friends, uh, or if you don't like the podcast, to people you hate. Drag them down. This is a shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself What's Sleep? Question mark. She is uh, queer in her 20s, uh, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She writes, I think, while objectively I know it's not my fault, I feel like any dysfunction that ensued was due to my problems. Good girl. There you go. That uh, We're up to a good start. Uh, she's never been sexually abused. Um, she has been emotionally abused. Uh, she had a really cold brother uh, that made her feel very, uh, very inadequate. Um, any positive experiences? Uh, we obviously share a family and have spent many positive, even if parallel, experiences together. Her darkest thoughts, um, she has struggled in the past with lying, and she, she writes... Um, her her brother had fallen on hard times recently, and she, she writes, he was miserable, and I was fucking eating it up. I would call my parents and casually ask how he was doing, because, of course, we don't talk ourselves, and they would tell me how nothing was new and everyone was sad and frustrated. I would listen with fake sympathy, all the while feeling the grossest, most vindictive satisfaction at the idea that he was suffering in a way that even kind of resembled my own for my entire life. I would fantasize about him hitting rock bottom and coming to me for advice, apologizing. I would fantasize about his friends out there getting tired of his shit and him being alone. I would fantasize about my parents telling him to grow up so he could feel what it was like to question their trust in him. I would feel all of this anger for him, but also ashamed because at the end of the day, each fantasy would end with some kind of reconciliation between us that never came, and I'd just end up feeling sad and neglected again. Even when he was struggling, he didn't even need me. Darkest secrets. Because I've always been so uncomfortable around men, I used to avoid my grandpa as a little kid. When we would stay at their house, I would go to bed. I would go around the room and kiss my mom, my dad, my grandma, and then just skip over my grandpa as if maybe he wouldn't notice. I feel so awful about it now. I can't imagine how sad that must have made him. I dwell on that all the time, and it always gives me this gross shame stomach churn, and I just want to go back and suck it up and give him a good night kiss. You know, my thought on that is you're listening to your body, and if kids are going to err in any direction, err on the side of listening to your body. And I, th I think you did something that a lot of kids wish they would have done, which was trust my instinct. So don't beat yourself up for that. You were, you were a kid too. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm mostly attracted to women and femme women at that, but I have one porn-induced fantasy where I'm the only woman in a room full of men with huge dicks. 
They gangbang me and double penetrate me and even come inside of me one after another. I get passed around and I literally don't have to do anything but take it and feel it. I'm not expected to say a word to them and I don't. Also, they don't ever talk down to me. They're just in it for their pleasure and I'm never expected to suck a dick or even kiss them, which I don't. After writing that, the only thing I can think is that my future therapist will have a field day with me. Um, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts and experiences? Neglect is confusing, right? Let's hug and validate each other. Absolutely. Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? Double check your queer identity definitions. Sometimes what you share is a little off and that can be problematic. Otherwise, uh, not a thing. I'm so happy to have found this fucked up little gem. Um, yeah, le- I'm, I'm always uh, game for learning, learning more. And um, I came into this podcast, I think, extremely ignorant about a lot of LGBTQ and other uh, um, subjects. And um, I always like learning more. This is a happy moment filled out by the rabid wombat. And he writes, sitting outside with my dogs, three and a half years since I got the first one, three and a half years since I've had serious suicidal ideation, looking at the cigarette burns I put on my arm and getting excited, coming up with ideas, using them for a tattoo. That is a positive man right there. Any comments to make the podcast better? I really wish Paul would rank his favorite cheeses. I'm pretty sure I speak for everyone on that. You know, that's interesting because I was just putting together uh, my list uh, of cheeses, but they weren't ranked. Um, So I've had to rank them. I would say number three would be Reggiano Parmesan. There's nothing Italian that it can't make better. Even Italian people, you could sprinkle it in their hair and you would enjoy their company even a little bit more. Uh, Number two, sharp cheddar. But you got to use it very judiciously. It's good in small doses. It's kind of the Nancy Grace of cheeses. And speaking of Nancy Grace, if we're still looking for a sustainable uh, energy source, we should look into what drives her indignation because it seems endless. And then the number one of the cheeses, the workhorse of sandwiches, Baby Swiss, which is the name that I danced under when I was a male gigolo. I used to have an ad in the paper that said, I only have one hole, but it's gigantic. There, there's my cheese bit. This is a struggle in a sentence. This is filled out by, ugh, U-G-H. I like him already. Um, and he gives us a snapshot from his life. He, he uh, lives with depression, anxiety, and anorexia. And he writes, I've noticed that Anymore, the only time I can escape my thoughts, anxiety, depression is through watching a TV show, movie, or porn. But recently, and it's happened more than once, while watching porn and clearly turned on and enjoying it, I will get the bursts of sadness. But it's so much more severe than just sadness. I become sick to my stomach, and it's almost like I'm getting a quick glimpse into a reality where I feel completely and utterly broken, lost, and hopeless, devoid of any happiness at all. It's really weird, and I don't know how to process it. Well, if I think there's any issue meant for going to a therapist uh, for, I think it would be this. And I would also suggest maybe one who is a CSAT, which is a certified uh, sex addiction therapist. Um, you may not be sex addicted, but if there is an addiction there, maybe they would they would help you um, 
address that. And if not a CSAT, um, certainly a therapist that works on some type of trauma, because there might be, even if you aren't thinking that there's trauma, um, our minds have a crazy way of burying things and saying, oh, that wasn't a big deal. So that, that'd be, that'd be my thought. Um, this is an awful moment filled out by Pix, who is gender fluid. And they write, an epileptic episode caused me to wreck my car somewhat spectacularly about five years ago. The car was totaled. And amazingly, I survived with a collapsed lung, several broken vertebrae, a few snapped ribs. Because the lung was collapsed due to my chest cavity having filled with blood, likely from the ribs having snapped and puncturing something in my torso, I had to be hospitalized for a week while the blood was drained into a little briefcase I carried around whenever I walked laps up and down the trauma unit. Uh, my family threw a coming home slash birthday party. My dad brought in the food he'd been cooking on the grill, which I'd assumed would had been hamburgers, but turned out to be ribs smothered in gory barbecue sauce. <laughs> This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Lazy Panda, who is straight, uh, 19, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. She writes, when I was little, my dad would watch movies with a lot of sexual content in it. Being the little copycat I was, I decided it would be awesome of me to act out what I saw. My dad laughing about it was also just the cherry on top of the encouragement that I needed. Eventually, other family members began to notice, and I was informed that what I was doing was gross, which was the beginning of a long road of feeling ashamed and embarrassed until I eventually got help. In my preteens, my stepdad was no better as he would have porn on while I was in the room or would full-blown make out with my mom in front of me. I have more trouble accepting that this may have affected me negatively uh, because I was older and it's far from serious at all compared to some of the stories I hear on this podcast. I've discussed what happened with my therapist and she has said it was sexual abuse and illegal as children shouldn't be exposed to that kind of stuff, but I'm still not entirely convinced that I'm not just, quote, too sensitive or too dramatic yet. It's just hard. I completely agree with your therapist. It is a form of sexual abuse. It is The message is the same as somebody that fondles their child, that punches their child, that uh, belittles their child. It is, you're giving the message, you don't matter. Um, any positive experience with the abusers? Uh, yeah, my stepdad can be super nice, giving me rides, making food, trying to give me motivational pep talks to help with school. It does complicate things because as I have recently learned, he's not all bad or all good. He's in between, so I have a lot of mixed feelings about him. Thank you for sharing that. And anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences. Um, hundreds of times, I felt like there was no hope left for me, that everything in this world is pointless and I will never get better. On this day, I can say that each time those thoughts have crossed into my mind, they have never been proven true. Thank you for that. Fighting off my Stepford double writes about her depression, postpartum depression, loving the miracle that is your baby more than you can explain, but being so terrified of failing him that you want to give him away to someone who won't break him the way you will. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Snapshot from her life. 
postpartum depression as a stay-at-home mom, taking a break from my Pinterest quest for the perfect homemade sink rescaler to Google most effective suicide methods. Hang in there. Hang in there. I can't imagine how overwhelming being a parent with depression has got to be. Womp Rat shares an awfulsome moment. At a friend's funeral, most of my school was there and knew that I knew this kid. He was the brother of a friend, but no one had any idea that he had saved me from sexual assault by another classmate only two years earlier. Uh, Not even my friend, his sister, knew how close he and I were. I was truly devastated that he could have been taken away from me so suddenly and struggling intensely as I watched my former classmates look at me and ask why I was so upset about this guy I never even hung out with. I have never told anyone about that element of my friendship. I was sat at the front of the church with my grandparents, both big both big parts of the church, and one of the people from the funeral home came in to open the little gates by the altar in preparation for them bringing in my friend's body. My grandpa, an old guy, and his hearing has been going for years so he doesn't realize how loudly he speaks. Everyone went quiet. When the funeral guy walked in, my granddad nudged me with his shoulder and announced ridiculously loudly, that right there is my very favorite undertaker. It was the first time I had laughed in about two weeks. Herbert. Oh, my God. That I don't know if you, that noise was audible on mic, but he does this whining. We have been giving them these new bacon apple jerky treats, and he is obsessed with them. He thinks, yeah, I'm talking about you. Now, he just walked into the room, and he's looking at me like, what's up? What? I just gave you treats. Buddy. I'm doing the podcast. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Bittersweet Bunny. Uh, She is in her 20s, straight, raised in a totally chaotic environment, Um, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, my dad sexually abused me since I was two till about 16. Herbert, I'm going to kick you out of the room. All right, I got to kick him out. Sorry about that. Um, He would threaten to kill me or say that I was mentally insane if I went and told anyone. It got so bad that I thought that's what he was that what he was doing to me was normal. After a while, I suppose he was brainwashing me. After some of the teachers at school started getting the hint that I was being abused—bruises on my arms, ankles, legs—from him holding me down, they told the school counselor, who then called me in and asked. if anything was going on. I broke down crying and shaking and told her everything. Child services got involved, of course, and they called my dad's work. He didn't go to jail or have any legal charges against him. And that's not even the worst part. The worst part is his job is being a police officer. She has no positive experiences with him. That's not surprising. Darkest thoughts. One of my fantasies is hiring a hitman to take out my father. I also think about him going to prison and being raped by the other inmates. I think about the fear and pain he would be in, and it brings me joy. He is a horrible person, and I want him to feel the pain he brought me. Darkest secrets. My dad also manipulated me and brainwashed me so bad 
that I think I have PTSD from his abuse. How could you not have PTSD from that? Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I can't even have sex or think about it without getting horrible flashbacks. Um, have you shared these things with others besides my counselor? I have told other family members who shunned me and don't want anything to do with me. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel upset, but it's nice to get these things off my chest. Um, any comments to make the podcast better? No, I love your podcasts and Herbert's butthole. Um, you know, fuck those family members that didn't believe you. You are better without them in your life. Um, and I'm so sorry that it that it has destroyed your ability to, to be sexual or at least wounded it to the point where it's not possible right now. But I hope you get help and consider checking out the Rape and Incest National Network, R-A-I-N-N.org. They have tons of resources and you deserve to heal. You absolutely do and you're not alone. This is an awful moment filled out by Mommy Drearest and um, she writes, at a particularly low point when I was maybe nine or ten, I was sitting in my foster mom's mother-in-law's basement and feeling particularly low, alone, and that life would never get better. I began to visualize and obsess over running very fast, fast into the basement wall and that maybe would kill me or at least harm me enough to give me some relief. Thinking back, it makes me laugh because I was so stupid to think that that was a good plan. Like, how fucking stupid? When is the last time you heard of suicide by running headfirst into a wall? It makes me happy to know that I can look back and feel compassion for myself for how dark it all felt, but also laugh at the way my depressed brain works. Well, I got to say, uh, of all the ways to kill yourself, it, while it might be the least efficient, it is the most frugal. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's an epidemic in Scotland. It was such, it was such a cheap shot at a horrible stereotype. I've never even been to Scotland. Maybe they're not cheap. But you know what? If haggis is a clue, that's a frugal country. If you've never had haggis, yeah, you, you are, you are, oh. They made it on dinner in a movie one time, and I couldn't. I ate a lot of shit on that show, and I couldn't. I couldn't even. I could barely look at it. Uh, this is a, an email I got from Olivia, and she writes. Um, she has general anxiety and depression, and she writes. There's one cop topic I hope one day you will cover. The worst experience I've ever been through. Uh, was in 2011 when I tried to stop taking my antidepressant Paxil. I did my best to wean off of it alone, lowering the dose, the dose a little bit every couple of weeks. I even kept a spreadsheet tracking my progress, but I still had a psychotic break. I thought I was famous and cameras had been installed throughout my apartment. My pa parents took me to several hospitals and eventually to a psychiatrist who gave me the right drug cocktail to mostly snap me out of it. So then I decided I, quote, probably wasn't famous, but I cashed out my 401k and tried to move to Wales anyway. Um, speaking of uh, the UK. Um, no, really, I flew to Wales and lived in a hostel for several weeks. It's complicated, but Wales was part of my delusions. 
I am just lucky that I didn't hurt myself or anyone else while I was delusional. Today, I still see the psychiatrist who helped me, and he has assured me that the break from reality I experienced was, quote, drug withdrawal-induced psychosis and was 100% caused by coming off of the Paxil too fast. He said that most people have some symptoms of withdrawal when they come off of antidepressants, with Paxil being one of the worst offenders, and about 5% might experience an episode like mine. I got very lucky. It would have been so easy for another doctor to misdiagnose me as being schizophrenic or bipolar. It's easy to imagine someone stopping their meds and mistaking the withdrawal symptoms as the returning or worsening of their original symptoms. Because of that, I think this is something that should be talked about more. I can't help but wonder how many people have been sucked into a cycle of taking new medication completely due to withdrawal symptoms from the last. I know antidepressants can help a lot, as they have helped me, but I also think anyone who takes them should be aware of the withdrawal risk. The worst I thank you for sharing that, and the worst I have ever gotten um, from them was a brain brain zaps, which um, a lot of people who have gone off of SSRIs uh, know they're, they're more annoying than than anything. This uh, was filled out by Skinny, but still hot. Oh, skinny, but still not hot. And she writes about her self-harm. A delicious jolt that brings me out of dissociation. First comes a bit of pain, but then it gives way to a sweet electric current that hits me all the way down in my soul. Suddenly I am present. I feel alive. I can breathe again and continue until the shame of relapsing overtakes me. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for that. Sending you a hug. This is an awful moment filled out by <laughs> facial expressions are for people pleasers. And she writes, My mom and I were very close to my grandmother, who was terminally ill from lung cancer. The day she died, we received a call from the hospital early in the morning saying she only had hours left, and we gathered the random collection of family members, most of whom rarely spoke, and sat by her bedside. The few hours she was quoted turned into about eight, and in the seventh hour, the devastated room of basically strangers finally acknowledged we were hungry, and with a tone I imagine is similar to jurors in a murder trial going in on an order for lunchtime, we decided on Taco Bell, and someone ran out to pick it up. Just as the grief-stricken silence evolved into the collectively cathartic crunch of hard-shell tacos, we got in about three bites before her vitals tanked. We held her hand and brushed the hair from her face and told her all of the wonderful things most people aren't afforded in their final moments. It was gorgeous and heart-wrenching and was the first time I ever saw someone die, much less held them while they did. Once she passed, people began to gather their items and go. As one of her closest family members, my brain was stuck in crisis efficiency mode as I asked her only minutes widowed husband if he was going to finish that. <laughs> oh. You never picture chalupas hanging around uh, a deathbed. Uh, that should be the new Taco Bell ad. Uh, send your loved ones out in style. <laughs> it would just be it would just be a blank screen and and as you hear the the person flatline, you hear the crunch of tacos. 
Little Penguin filled out a uh, shame and secret survey. She is bisexual in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, and did report it. Uh, I was groped by a teacher at my high school when I was 15. He was a beloved girls volleyball coach and he touched my breast one day after school. I didn't really know what to do, so I just stood there with a deer in the headlight stare. I finally made up some excuse that my mom was going to be picking me up and got the hell out of there. I know I wasn't the first because he told me about it and I'm sure I wasn't the last. I know I wasn't the first because he told he told me about it and I'm sure I wasn't the last. He had a girlfriend or wife and a young daughter. I feel fear for them both. I reported it to my band teacher and my school counselor and ended up going to court. Nothing ever came of it because there was no proof. He ended up getting transferred to another school but didn't ultimately lose his job. When the volleyball team found out about it, they wanted to kick whoever's ass got their precious coach taken away. Nobody believed that he did it. Man, that, that is the trauma on top of the trauma. Um, she's never been physically abused, but she's been emotionally abused. I have a narcissistic mother. This is one of the main reasons I'm in therapy. I have been so scared to talk about it for several reasons. What will people think? Will my mom be able to find and read this post? How could this be used against me? But I'm sick of being invisible. I grew up in a single mother household. My parents divorced when I was two and my dad had every other weekend visitation rights. He was and is an alcoholic, but I love him dearly. My mother has had many illnesses and surgeries throughout her life. And for many of my younger years, I pretty much lived in the hospital. Whenever I myself got sick, I felt guilty as hell for inconveniencing my mom. Uh, when I was healthy, I also felt guilty because I felt like I was rubbing it in her face. I walked on eggshells all the time. My mom is a beautiful, brilliant, charismatic, charming, quick to anger, depressed, insecure, smothering, self-centered, discouraging, uh, manipulative, and a hoarder. That That is, that's a quintuple threat, uh, octuple threat. She is, and then she continues, I realized I didn't need to take care of myself until it almost became too late. A couple of years ago, I had a complete breakdown. I suffered an episode of psychosis. I went through a private hell and fortunately came out the other side. I was not unscathed, but I was still very much here. My husband, my therapist, and myself have all played a huge role in my recovery. I am far from having all the answers, but I'm getting out of bed and trying every single day. I don't deserve a medal. I know that other people have had it a lot worse than I did, but the things that I went through have shaped me and changed me and made me who I am to some degree. I share them with you so that maybe it will be helpful in some small way. If I can spare someone else's pain or let them know they're not alone, I will be happy. I'm sorry if all this is overwhelming. I just can't keep swallowing it anymore. It needed to come out into the open. I need to feel human. You know, what you shared is every bit as important as a person whose um, abuse or neglect was much more dramatic. It is incredibly important for people to hear this because news stories aren't done about this news stories are, are done about you know somebody being uh, kidnapped and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. but p- 
people don't do news stories about this, and this needs to be talked about. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you shared it, and I'm glad all of you people that, uh, that share the things that aren't, um, dramatic. Because those are the things sometimes that fuck us up the most because we feel like we're being a baby. We feel like our, you know, feelings aren't valid, that we're just too sensitive. And that's also a, something that's used a lot by the narcissistic parent to keep from having to own their shit is calling the, the kid too sensitive or too dramatic. Um, positive experiences with your abuser. Sure, my mom was the center of my world until I started wanting to become my own person. Those younger years were much better than ages 12 to 17. The older I get, though, the harder it is to remember the times when I did feel close to my mom. Darkest thoughts. I think all the time that my life won't begin until my mom dies. I feel like I won't be free until then. I also think of horrible, gruesome ways in which people... The people and animals I love could die. The pictures in my head are so vivid and grotesque that it scares me. I, I have those about my pets sometimes, about what could what could happen to them. Um, and, you know, you don't have to wait. This is going to sound horrible. But you don't have to wait for your mom to die for her to be dead to you. You know, ask yourself, maybe get a pen and a paper and put down the negative things that you experience in your, your relationship with her and the positive things you experience in your relationship with her. And just take a close look at them. Darkest secrets. During my episode of psychosis, I ate my own poop. I urinated on my grandmother's grave. I screamed at the top of my lungs in a restaurant. I am horribly ashamed of all of these. Do they make me a bad person, a weirdo, a freak? Up until now, I thought they did. But now as I write them down, for the first time, I decide no. I was not in my right mind, and the brain is still a mystery to even the smartest of scientists. I regret these things to this day, and I don't think I'll ever recover from the poop thing. It's my worst waking and dreaming nightmare. Well, I'm glad that you um, feel differently after writing it down, because you you shouldn't feel an ounce of shame and you hit it right on the head that the brain is still a mystery even to the smartest of, of scientists. Um, so let, let go of that shame. And and the reason I say that is I'm assuming that the poop was not paired uh, with a red wine instead of a white wine. Um, because if I'm wrong and you actually ate it with the wrong wine, well, then I, I cast you to hell because I can't think of another joke. <laughs> I thought I'd have thought I'd have one. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, they usually involve rape of, or some kind of unnatural stuffing of holes. I have no idea where it comes from. I feel intense shame and I don't feel normal. Oh, do you have any idea how normal it is? Do you have any idea? You know, why is there a hole if it's not meant to be stuffed? Either going out or coming in. Um, even after everything I've been through with my mom, I wish I could tell both her and my dad what happened the night I was in full-fledged psychosis. I'm not sure why I'm compelled to come clean. I guess I feel like a liar keeping it bottled up. No, you know what I think? I think you want your pain witnessed, which is so human. That's our, that's what children need and you didn't get. That is, you are 
a completely okay person who is having a completely normal reaction to completely un-okay experiences. Sending you some love. Sending you some love. <laughs> this is a happy moment filled out by PTS doing it. She writes, in the first healthy relationship since getting help for my PTSD and codependency, I sat across from my then new boyfriend as we looked at each other like puzzles we were trying to figure out. As a fellow survivor of abuse, his from his ex-girlfriend and me from a series of men, starting with my family, we're still kind of astonished by every mindful, healthy step we take towards establishing and respecting boundaries. As I was talking about something, he picked up my hand and kissed it gently, still listening. My historical, embarrassed, panicked, exposed feeling I would get when someone appeared to notice I was there during intimate moments was surpassed by my surprise and I instinctively said, I like how you touch me. That sounds weird, but even when you're just touching my hand, it's like you're discovering something precious. How else would I touch you? He genuinely asked. For the first time in a while, I didn't feel a, a need to list the ways. Beautiful. Beautiful. And it would have been awkward if uh, when he had asked how else would I touch you, you had said you can finger blast me right here in the restaurant. Because then they, then they won't mind if we run out on the check. Why do I got to ruin it? Why do I have to soil a, a beautiful white landscape with my urine? You know why? Because I want to see my name written. That's, that's really it. I want to see... Uh, I can't stand it being about somebody else. Ethan, who is a teenager, writes about uh, his depression, ADD, and anxiety, gives us a snapshot from his life. Sitting on my bed, sobbing and shaking, when I see my mother walk in, and I immediately jump up and hide the noose that was sitting on the floor a few feet away. Oh, buddy, please go talk to somebody, Ethan. Please, because you, you clearly have a plan and if you're listening to this, please reach out to somebody because it, it, you are not going to feel this way forever. And there are so many, so many issues um, that, that get better and can be managed and people can lead healthy, happy, functioning lives. And you're young. If you were 96 and you were like, this just isn't working out. I'd be like, dude, you gave it a good run. You gave it a good run. The roof's over here. Somebody's going to take Somebody's going to take exception to that and email me and in anticipation of that, I'm going to carve a go fuck yourself basket into which I will uh, print their email and throw it in because the trash on my desktop is not enough. I need to hear it actually crinkle in person. Rose Teacup. Uh, this is the Shame and Secret survey. Uh, she's straight, 27, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, never been sexually abused. Not sure um, if she was physically 
or emotionally. She writes, my depressed mother taught me how to be depressed. My absent father taught me that men won't stick around. My stepmother taught me that jealousy knows no bounds, including coming between my father and I to further separate us. But at the same time, my mother taught me how to love love creativity, fantasy, and sci-fi, and that being creative is the best way to cope. My father taught me how to be versatile, how to create to solve problems, and how to love technology. My stepmother taught me to love God and love others unconditionally, including her. Wow, that is deep. That that is like the podcast in a in a, the the dark and the light of the podcast in a single paragraph. Darkest thoughts. I have a history with self-mutilation and my heart races every time I pick up a knife. I love cooking and the world disappears when I'm chopping vegetables because I have to be very aware of my actions. I'm afraid even a nick of my finger would cause this demon inside of me to wake up and I will start slicing and stabbing my arm to the bone. Broken glass has the same effect. Exacto knives, letter openers, scissors, wire cutters. I want to pinch my skin and clip through it. Even my sculpting tools, the very things I use to create, I'm constantly fighting myself to stay on the piece and not give in to the urge to carve my own body. People wonder why it takes me so long to finish my work, and I will never tell them. Wanting to hurt myself, being able to hurt myself so readily, and then not letting myself is enough pain to satiate that demon for now. Wow. Thank you for that. Darkest secrets, my thigh is purple because I've taken to beating it. I have surges of anger and disappointment in myself, and I lash uh, not damn it, I hate when I staple this in the wrong place. I lash out. I didn't want to continue after the first time I did it. I know it's taken the place of my cutting. Now I can't stop. Uh, now it's the automatic reaction to that flux, and I'm afraid I'll do it when people are around because it's been such an automatic response. I have a boyfriend who loves me. He'd be crushed if he saw what I've been doing. My love of the pain is not worth losing the love of my life. I hope he doesn't see, and I hope I can stop. I hope you can share with him what your struggle is, because that can bring you two closer together. Um, I think intimacy is impossible without um, there being knowledge of each other's pain. You know, there's certain things you don't want to share with your partner, you know, like, oh, you look hideous in that in that sweater or, you know, things like that. But, um, yeah. Uh, sexual fantasies, rape. I want to be desired so badly that they don't care about me. I want to be the vessel for that carnal urge. I'm so sorry to those that have been raped or sexually abused. I feel like this desire of mine spits in their faces. I feel like I'm as horrible as their abuser. I am so sorry. I, you, you know how I feel about that. You know that that's, that couldn't be further from the truth. That's just your brain. And there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, what if anything do you wish for? I'm 27 and both of my parents are dead. I wish they knew how sorry I was for being such a little shit. They deserved better from me at times and now they're gone. I'll never be able to make it up to them. They'll never meet my kids. They'll never see me grow. I was by both of their sides for their final breath. I'm trying to hold on to the fact I'm the only child of any of theirs to be able to say that. Um, you sound like the sweetest human being. And... I just, 
hope you can get to a place where you can see how lovable you are and how worthy of love you are. And you were by your parents' bedside. You know, I I wasn't even by my dad's bedside when he died of cancer. I could have gone back more than I did, and I have shame about that. But I didn't want to be, I didn't want to, to, I don't know if it's I didn't want to feel pain or I didn't want to, I don't know why, but there was just, um, I just didn't want to feel it. I didn't want to deal with it. And uh, if there's an afterlife, your parents are very, very proud of you. You know, people always say, you know, I think your dad's looking down on you saying this or your mom's looking down on you saying this. Just once I like to hear somebody say, you know, I think your dad's looking up at you uh, regretting what a dick he was. This was filled out by Emotional Devotional, and he is bisexual in his 20s, raised in a stable and safe, polite environment. You know, polite is usually... There's usually something underneath polite. (laughs) There's usually some emotional neglect underneath polite. Um, He's never been sexually abused. He's been emotionally abused, but he doesn't um, elaborate. Any positive experiences with abusers? I'm divorced and things became emotionally toxic and horrible towards the end. She hit me a couple of times as well. We divorced six years ago and I'm not over her, but at least we've stopped trying to get back together again, I hope. Darkest thoughts, I think about fucking my dogs. Is an OCD thing. Being scared of the thought makes the thought stronger. Darkest secrets, my bed is covered in dog shit because I'm too depressed to clean it. Have I mentioned I'm a social worker? Um, sexual fantasies, most powerful to you. Polite, we don't talk about sex. I hide my sexual desires even from my se- myself. What would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm talking... I'm about 40% talking to my parents about how, with the best intentions, they fucked me up. It feels like a never-ending conversation. My sister committed suicide when I was five. If I could talk to one person, it would be her. I'm so sorry for your loss. So sorry for that. Have you shared these things with others? Polite. Uh, People don't want to hear this shit. Yes, some people do. A lot of people not only want to hear this shit, they need to hear this shit because they feel alone. And if you keep this all to yourself, not only are you suffering, but you are one less person for somebody else to feel uh, less alone with. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. How do you feel after writing these things down? Tense. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? No, I help and I help and I help. I want someone to help me for a change. Then for the love of God, say the three most important words any of us have ever said in our lives. Certainly me. Please help me. Your your life will change in a way that you won't be able to predict and that's where that's where real living begins with saying please help me and then letting them help you and being open to the way in which they help you and this is assuming this is a safe knowledgeable person that has experience 
Void87 uh, shares a snapshot from his life. His issues are depression and anxiety. He writes, I was at a training session at work on autism spectrum disorder today. In one segment, we were comparing how we, as teachers and presumed, quote, normal, differ in situations to children with ASD. One of the questions that came up was, how do you make yourself feel better when things go wrong? I felt a slump. I wanted to cry and lay down. I was surrounded by people talking about how ice cream, exercise, music, beer, and talking to others made them feel better, while I thought about all the times I hyperventilated, wanted to run away, sweated, went to bed or laid down, drank excessively, and the screams and cries in my head. That, that, that is one of the most alienating things about mental illness is is like being around people laughing or just offhandedly talking about the things they're able to accomplish. You know, like somebody will say, you know, I cleaned the garage today and I would think, what's that like? And I've done it before. I've cleaned the, a garage before, but not when I'm in, not when I'm in the, the doldrums. Um, you know, if I'd have been there and they <laughs> asked me what I do, I'd say, I like to eat pizza in a pile of puppies while everybody else fucks off. I like to play Civ 5 until my fucking hand is numb and the sun is coming up. I like to jerk off in the mirror to celebrate the fact that I'm not a ghost. That last one I think I might have made up. Maybe I didn't. Yeah, people that don't deal with depression and anxiety, they don't they don't do not understand how what an effort those things are. There should be a triathlon for uh, depression and anxiety. Uh, maybe like the first leg is a 16-hour cocktail party. Uh, and you strip out of your cocktail party clothes real fast. And uh, you put on fancier clothes and you go to a wedding. And then you get out of your, then you get out of your fancy clothes real fast and uh, you put on a bathing suit and you go on vacation with your family. And that's that's normally the part that most people will tap out. They'll, they'll get to the hotel and they'll be like, I, I'm gassed. I can't do it. I trained and I trained and I trained. But the people I trained with are not my family. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Lavender. She's gay. She's 18, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, I was sexually abused by my female elderly babysitter. There was fondling and digital penetration often done while reading the children's book, The Tale of Peter Rabbit. I honestly feel kind of numb thinking about it. I dissociate when it comes up and I don't feel, quote, real. It is one of the darkest, most fucked up things I have read. And of course you feel numb. That saved you. That feeling has kept you alive. Oh, I'm so sorry. She's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, abused. Um, 
Emotional abuse from my mom. She would call me names, threaten to send my horse to slaughter, threaten to institutionalize me, accuse me of not loving her, tell me about her marital problems, slash overshare, gaslight me, intentionally cause panic attacks by her own admission. Physical abuse happened pretty rarely with no long-term damage. I've been slapped a few times and once I was shoved into a door. When there was physical abuse, it was accompanied by more harmful emotional psychological abuse. Today, I'm absolutely terrified whenever someone so much as raises their voice or expresses disapproval. I'm pretty bitter about this, but want to keep a relationship with my mother. You know, the only thing I can think to say is listen to your body. Just listen to your body. Let it... Let it um, be your friend. And if there's an addiction that you're using to escape from the numbness, try getting away from it for a while so your body can get back in tune and start telling you subconsciously what your consciousness won't allow you to think. You know, I I hope that doesn't sound too complicated, but our intellect will often override our body's instinct to get the fuck out of somewhere. And um, that normally is developed as children because we weren't able to flee. And so our brain came up with a reason why we had to dissociate. Uh, Darkest thoughts. I've thought about being in the shoes of my sexual abuser and abusing a young child myself. The thought disgusts me and makes me want to throw up. I'm fairly certain that it has something to do with PTSD, OCD of some sort, but I'm not a professional. I'm also a bit of a sadomasochist. Whether I take the role of sadist or masochist depends on what's going on in my life. I'm pretty sure it's about control and reclaiming pain I experienced as a child or adolescent. Darkest secret. My sexual abuse is something I never want anyone to find out. Only two people know, and I intend to keep it that way. Um... Sadomasochism makes me feel pretty intense shame. Bondage stuff doesn't cause as much shame, though. While I can get off without it, I'm still drawn to it. Uh, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I didn't deserve any of this. I want to say this to everyone who's told me I caused my emotional abuse and the little voice inside me that thinks that my babysitter, quote, ruined me somehow. What do you wish for to feel safe? That's it. That's fucking it. And I don't know if I'll ever get that. You can get that. You can get that, but you have to find a support network of people who are safe. You can't expect people around you to change. Um, for me, I had to be around people who were living and feeling the way I wanted to feel. And I had to start seeing how they lived and letting them love me. And I think that's I think a support group would be a fantastic way for you to do that. Is that the first time I mentioned support group on today's episode? That would be a record. I know I did in the interview, but I probably mentioned it in the first two minutes. Happy Moment by Sad Panda. As a victim of a sex crime as a juvenile. I love to this fucking podcast. Only on this podcast could a happy moment start out with, you know... After being anally raped on the roof of a bus, I saw the most beautiful sunset. Uh, As a victim of sex crime as a juvenile, I have always had a hard time with asserting my feelings, thoughts, and personal space. I do it, but I always feel bad afterwards for being demanding or assertive. And when it's totally within my rights as a human to do so, or when it's being asked of me, I still feel bad. 
Today I stood up to a much older male co-worker who likes to be touchy-feely, hugged, shoulder grabs, standing too close, um, just having just having to touch me, and told him I don't like to be touched. Okay, well, I freaked out and told him to stop touching me. Even freaking out is a step. I will internalize everything, and I don't feel bad for asserting myself because I feel worse when I let someone touch me without asking even something as innocent as their hands on my shoulders. I fucking love this, and that's why I wanted to read it, because this is what recovery looks like. Baby steps. Little tiny baby steps that are uncomfortable and new and feel weird, and we second-guess ourselves. And that, that is a high five. Joy, uh, I just wanted to read this this one part of Joy's Shame and Secrets survey. Uh, you know, classic, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Um, she writes, it was actually more along the lines of sexual harassment, I suppose, since nothing ever, quote, happened. My stepfather would give me a hug and make remarks about my breasts when I was 15 or so. He'd also openly discuss his desire of getting me drunk and seeing me in a tank top, stuff like that. That is fucking total sexual abuse that is total sexual abuse and don't run from whatever it is that you're feeling about that stop minimizing it and and let the oh, i hate this phrase journey of recovery begin that's so new agey but it's the truth this is an email i got from uh, zarchi and he writes, Dear friend, I hope you are fine over there in your country. I know that this message will come as a surprise to you, but let me start by introducing myself. I am Mr. Zarchi Hassan, manager of African Development Bank Burkina Faso. I am writing you this letter to fulfill the promise I have with Allah. Now listen to me. Let me explain to you. Um, I think he thinks I'm going somewhere because now listen to me. Let me explain to you. It sounds like... Um, I come across as jumpy and impatient. I don't know. I don't know what he's heard, but this is very distressing. Anyway, now listen to me. Let me explain to you. In my department in the bank, I discovered the sum of 20 million U.S. dollars, and I was searching for a foreign foreigner partner who will assist me to claim the fund. First, I send you an email concerning the transaction. Uh, but I waited to hear from you about the transaction business in which I proposed to you, but I did not hear anything from you again. Maybe you are too busy or you did not receive my message. I was too busy. If it's if it's not over $40 million, I generally uh, file it as, as uh, get to it later. So I've been searching for who to hand over the fund to before I remembered you, so I decided to hand over the money under your care for you to use and help the motherless babies and the widowers over there in your country. I hope it's not intended to be for both of them at the same time because motherless babies and widowers fucking hate each other. You would think that they get along because they both lost uh, a male, an adult male, uh, or a, a, an adult female. Um but they don't. You get them in a room together and the you know, the dude is like, I miss my wife. And then the baby is like, I don't have a mommy. And they're like, shut the fuck up. I'm trying. Oh, it's ugly. It is ugly. Uh, 
Continuing, you can receive it into your bank account in your country, so feel free to contact my secretary, Mrs. Marsha Moore, for I have gave them instruction to transfer the funds to you as soon as you contact her. Please give some part of this funds to the motherless babies and widowers in your country. Um, I'll think about it. Note, I will not be checking my email because I am too busy here now in South Korea. Um, he's the other part of the email I didn't read. Um, he has another client there that he's trying to get the money to. I've instructed my secretary to direct you how to receive the fund, and I want you to keep this as secret. Do not let my secretary to know about this transaction. I just explained to you now I only kept the fund under her care, but she's not aware of the transaction. I told her that the money is for charity project. So contact her and introduce yourself to her because I have also told her about you. So tell her to direct you on how you will receive the funds. Please make sure that the motherless babies and the widowers over there in your country will receive this money. And I, I hope I can speak freely here. And I will, I will address this in my uh, response to him. But the only thing I hate more than widowers are motherless babies. And the only one I hate more than the two of them is your fucking secretary. Now, clearly you hate her too because you're keeping her out of the loop. So I say we take the $20 million and the three of us do group therapy. You work through not trusting her. She can work through her resentment at you for not keeping her in the loop. And I can get some closure on my issues with motherless babies and widowers. This is a shame and secret survey, and we're in the home stretch. We're in the home stretch. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself unlovable. He's straight in his 30s, raised in a stable and safe environment. He was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He doesn't elaborate. Um, physically and emotionally abused. And in this one, he, he writes, I was molested by and molested other boys growing up all the time for a long time. I believe it all started with one man who was reported just not me or probably the many boys he molested before he was caught. He went to jail for a few years, but when he got out, he still spent a lot of time with young boys, some of whom I'm sure got similar treatment. I didn't understand any of this or the consequences of it all growing up. Only in the last few years has the gravity of it really started to hit me. I'm deeply ashamed of my own perpetuation of it. I have never been in a serious relationship in my entire life and don't know if I will ever have a healthy relationship. I have come to accept this as a sort of penance for my behavior as a young man. Do not look at it that way. Um, your, your, and now who knows what the future holds for you, but your um, uh, sense of safety uh, was greatly wounded. And to have a relationship with somebody, there has to be a, a healthy relationship with somebody. There has to be a sense of safety. And, that is not who you are. That's the wound that is inside you. Darkest thoughts. I think of how much more powerful I am than most women my size and what I could do to them and how terrifying it would be if I was the type of person to act on these thoughts. They just think I am this nice guy but don't understand why I am so deeply unhappy and weird about sex and consent and why I can never initiate. It becomes about them and I can never explain why I am so hesitant when I am otherwise so affectionate. 
Support group. Support group. Darkest Secrets. I had an experience with a gay man as an adult while drugged or blacked out drunk a few years ago. I have told one woman about this since. Uh, The extent of molestation as a boy and young man that I experienced would sound unbelievable if I were to detail just how messed up it really was. I don't think after what we've heard on this podcast, anything anything would shock us. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to be dominated. I want to be held down and taken, but not in any hostile or rough way, just totally sexually dominated. It has happened a few times and was a very powerful experience and very prominent in my fantasies. Uh, Anything you'd like to say to someone? I would like to ask the man who began the cycle in my particular circle of adolescent boys and many others, I have no doubt, if he understands or even thinks about the consequences of what he did in the lives of his victims. What do you wish for? The love, support, and understanding of someone I could actually tell these things to who wouldn't think I was some kind of monster, someone who would understand who I really am and love and trust me despite that. You are not a monster. You wouldn't be filling this survey out if you were a monster. You're filling the survey out because you have a conscience and you were perpetuating the abuse that was that was done to you. That's so common for children to, to do. Um, you know, a monster would be somebody who uh, is an adult and is doing this and doesn't care. That's a monster. How do you feel after writing this down? Um, a little lighter, but not any less ashamed. Uh, though I knew it was wrong on some level, I did what I did. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone uh, who's experienced that? You can live with some horrible, weird experiences and not turn into someone who would ever do anything harmful to young people or children as an adult. Absolutely. Please be kind to yourself. And I think a support group um, would be really good. Maybe contact the thing I always plug on here, the Rape and Incest Net. Uh, national network this is a happy moment filled out by one hand clapping and she writes I have always had problems with acne and being overweight and because of this I am very self-conscious about my appearance and rarely ever think of myself as beautiful or attractive that being said a friend of mine who is really into makeup recently told me about an app where you can apply makeup filters to your pictures so you look like Game of Thrones characters I love the show and thought it would be fun to try, so I downloaded it. I soon found out that in addition to the makeup filters, you can also Photoshop your face in the app to remove blemishes, eye bags, smooth your skin out, and so on. I soon became obsessed with perfecting a picture of myself. I showed my husband the Photoshopped goddess I had turned myself into and the original troll-esque picture of myself that I had changed. He looked kind of disgusted, and I immediately shamed myself for showing him a version of me that would never exist. Then he said, the new picture looked nothing like me and the original was better than I am and that I am beautiful how I am. My eyes immediately filled with tears and I felt a warm rush of love. I married a great man. Beautiful. Beautiful. This is filled out by Just Trying. She is in her 20s. Um, uh, sexuality, she, she writes other. I have slept with women, but I continuously question my decisions and wonder if I just think I loved her because it felt more safe than every man. 
Uh, she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, she was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She's been physically and emotionally abused. She writes, my listen to this sentence. My mother is a wonderful person, but found it difficult to understand that her children were indeed, uh, that it was not the end of her, that her children were in, I think it was meant, were indeed that it was not the end of her existence when we would, did not follow the family model she envisioned. How did I fuck up this badly to deserve a freak of a daughter was the one that stays with me, all for dyeing a strip of my hair green. I forgave her and want to hold her every time I see her in a vulnerable place, refusing to acknowledge the realities that she must face. Years of continued subtle, not good enough because you're not what I want statements deeply affect my perception of how I will never be good enough for someone else and I believe is the reason for my choice in emotionally unavailable individuals. Well, that's pretty That's pretty perceptive. Um, and what a fitting, um, very fitting episode for this, this to be on. Any positive experiences? With my brother, he flip-flopped between pulling me into his world where I'm loved and shoving me into my own where no one could love me. I fear that I will forever wait for the brotherly love I want. Darkest thoughts. I almost cry at four-way intersections, waiting for a car to nail my side of the car just so my family won't have to know how much I want to die. Oh, my God. I am ashamed about my inability to enjoy masturbating. There seems to be this great open conversation about women expressing themselves and talking about their positive sexual experiences, and I want to be a part of that. When I try to enjoy my own body, I can only think of the sound of my brother over me, next to me, touching me. I want to vomit, but I just cry. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to be tied up and raped, but I want to emotionally accept that I have no control. I don't want them to stop. Uh, I, I would like to... Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my parents that whenever I responded poorly, I was simply unable to relate to them what I had been to them what I had been abused. I think she meant that I had been abused, that I had taken their idealized thought of a family from them. What if anything do you wish for? I wish I had trusted my own memory. Have you shared these things with others? I share most in hopes to help others understand the potential pressure that those around them can be under when judgment is passed. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like exhaling is hydraulic-powered metal crushing my chest. I have to accept that this is part of me. Anything you'd like to share with people who shares your share your thoughts or experiences? It's okay to put, cut people off, but hang on to those that let you be who you are. That should be a t-shirt. That is so absolutely so true and I'm so sorry you experienced all that to be so triggered when you're just trying to be sexual on your own I mean that is I wonder if EMDR would help I don't know but I hope I hope you're seeing someone I, I, I hope you're talking uh, to a professional or getting have some type of support network because that is that is a lot um any comments that make the podcast better? Maybe more about Herbert's personality. Well, you know, I agree with that because Herbert is more than just a butthole. Um, and I, I, I don't talk about their, their personality. If I could describe Ivy in one sentence, she is completely driven 
by um, attention, and she's very, her personality is extremely complex and a lot of, she has a lot of contradictions in her personality. Um, like she wants you to pet her, and then once you start petting her, she just, <laughs> she's like a love avoidant. Um, and she experienced trauma as a puppy. She was attacked by her litter when she was uh, six weeks old and almost died. Uh, Herbert is completely driven by food, and he is the most stubborn living thing I've ever seen. He constantly looks at the counter as if we don't realize that there are treats up there. He can make a bed. He could make a bed out of a nickel, and you would be jealous at how comfortable he looks sleeping on the nickel. Um, one of my favorite things about Herbert, and although sometimes it annoys me, is when I come home after hockey and I lay on the ground to stretch, he <laughs> will lick my sweaty hair, lick my sweaty face, and then when he's done with those two, he drills his tongue into my ears. So much that if my wife is standing above me and talking, I can't even hear what she's saying. Uh... And he also, Herbert, thinks that the treats are just for going out the sliding door and coming back in. He doesn't realize it's associated with peeing, so he's always by the door, staring out the door. Um, and he's a little creepy at night because he's just waiting for my wife to wake up for him to get his first soft food of the day. And you'll wake up in the middle of the night, and he is right by you in the dark, staring at you in silence. He's not unlike an abusive husband in a Lifetime movie. So I hope that that's a little more than Herbert's butthole. This is Struggle in a Sentence. And Mommy Dreer writes um, about being a sex crime victim. When my husband touches me like my father did, I am aroused, shamed, and self-loathing, sick, and then fully disengaged. What the fuck is wrong with me? Can I borrow another body, one without fucked up memories attached? This is this is another heavy one. I'm sorry. I'm uh, hitting you with, with back-to-back uh, heavy ones. Um, snapshot from her life, uh, flashback. I was maybe eight years old. And had just got off the school bus and entered the house to see my father sitting at the dining table waiting for me. Quickly, I discerned from the look in his eyes and body language that he was hoping to fulfill his sexual needs. My mind was racing over possible escape techniques, and I settled on pleading with him to please just let me go outside and play. He began to cry, and it's the first time I see an admission of wrong. Looking back, it was the first time I'd ever spoke up for myself. Before, I'd always frozen and complied silently. I think he had had to admit at that moment I was a separate thing, separate from his fantasy. I still struggle with authority figures and asserting myself as an adult. I feel so childish and afraid all the time. And you are not alone in that. You are not alone in that. And it you do not have to feel that way all the time. It takes a tremendous amount of work and a lot of opening up and learning to retrust. But you didn't you you can feel better you can feel better but i mean that's that is um a lot of things i read on this uh stack of surveys that just took my breath away and i'm sure yours too and for those of you with bad breath that was probably a good thing that is so dumb why'd you do it paul i thought it would be funny 
<clears throat> Retired stand-up comedians aren't funny, Paul. Well, you know what? Fucking radio is a dying art form. Easy. Top of the hour. Bachman Turner Overdrive. Taking care of business. See, that? you're afraid of intimacy. That's why you just always put on a classic rock song when you don't know what to say. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Heavy Bag of Shame. He is straight in his 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused. He has been physically and emotionally abused. My older brother abused my mom and me. He blamed us for my dad leaving. He would do things like stand in the kitchen, take all the dishes out of the cabinets and drop them on the floor while they shattered. Um... My mom would sit there crying because we couldn't afford new dishes, and I was powerless to do anything to help her. He would torture me in ways that go beyond normal brothers fighting. He broke the door to my room down to get to me and would sometimes get in physical fights with my mom. Any positive experiences? My brother wasn't always bad, and after he went into a recovery program for troubled youth at Capo, he got better. I'm not sure what Capo is. Darkest thoughts. I imagine burning the families of those who have wronged me in their homes while they sleep. I imagine murdering my ex-girlfriend's husband in the worst ways so she can experience a lifelong pain of lost love. I imagine being in control of a nuclear bomb. Darkest secrets. I used to take 10 times the normal dose of the drug ecstasy alone and masturbate while watching pornography until the sun came up. I stole all of my grandmother's... Uh, hydrocodone, I think that's uh, Vicodin, when she needed it for headaches, and she suffered because of me. Sexual fantasy most powerful to you. I have fantasies about being with transgender partners. Partners, they are the strongest and strangest, and I feel a massive amount of guilt and shame after I am married. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? My ex-girlfriend, that after 14 years and me being married for 10 of those, it still hurts. I still have dreams about her. They are invasive and I don't want them, but they happen. It's stupid because she would be completely different now and I only care about the person from 14 years ago. She told me it would get better with time, but it didn't. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could just be happy with the life I have and to live without anxiety, major depression, bipolar 2, and avoidant personality disorder. Have you shared these things with others? I have never shared these things other than anonymously. How, would you, how do you feel after writing this down? Like, I wish I could tell everything, my whole story, and pour my heart out to a real person who would care and understand and relate. And I don't think that will ever happen. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Where are you? I don't want to be alone anymore. That is, that is, um, buddy, I just want to hug you. I just want to hug you. You're, you're, you deserve to, to have your story heard, to be listened to. Uh, to have your pain witnessed and do not have any shame or guilt about your sexual fantasies. They are not strange. Wanting to be with a transgender person, that's not strange. You know, there is no normal sexuality. Um, and so many of us torture ourselves because we think there is. 
And I want to read you this next. I say this next thing uh, for last um, because I wanted to read it after yours. And this is from Jay. And we read Jay's um, survey either last week or the week before. And Jay was um, a married man who wants to transition uh, into um, being a, a, a woman. Uh, actually, internally, Jay is um, female, but was born male and cannot, could not express to his wife what was going on inside of him. She had no idea that he was felt like a lie, you know, being in a in a male body and wanted to die. And so I read his survey and he emailed me back and he writes, uh, you read my survey a couple episodes ago and I thought I should reach out to you. You may or may not remember, but I used the name Wish I Could Be Me. And I am a trans female married with kids. What you said really hit home and made me feel like I would be okay. Um, I think I have built up this wall of shame and disgust for myself and hearing your pain and my story gave it a new feeling for me. I don't think I have ever had empathy for myself. I should mention my wife is also an avid listener and knew immediately that was my writing and voice. She brought it up last Thursday night and I had a breakdown. I told her it was me and I've always had these feelings. She hurt for me and couldn't imagine what it's been like to feel so scared for so long. In the last couple of days, we have talked more and connected like never before. She has been amazing and it has gone better than I could have ever imagined. I'm sure we will have bumps along the way, but life is going to be okay. I don't know what the future has in store for me, but I do know I picked the best partner to journey down this road with. I don't know why I originally filled out that survey, but I am so glad I did. One last thing. I have now been in therapy for five weeks, and it's helping with my anxiety and depression a ton. Now I get to tell my therapist one more thing to add to the plate. I am also looking into groups in my area related to trans issues for myself and eventually my family. Emails like that are why I get up in the morning. It is, you know, people will say to me sometimes, how do you handle reading all that that dark shit day in and day out. And yeah, it can get heavy and it can get taxing. But you know, when you read something like that, it is, it, I don't even know, I have trouble putting it in words, but it's, there's so much good in the in the world. There's so much beauty and there's there's so much love. And for the first 40 years of my life, I didn't know that I'd closed myself off from it because I wanted to control everything and everybody. And I thought the route to safety and peace was by being impressive. And I just wound up being a pompous jackass. Now, I'm still a pompous jackass, but I have moments when I tone it down and I connect to people and I get vulnerable and it makes life awesome. And that's there for any of you. And no matter what you're going through, you are not alone. You are not alone in it. You think 
nobody else understands, you would be amazed how many people understand. And there is hope and there's help. You just have to say those three words. And you know what they are. Her, Bert's, butthole. I think that's two words. It's either two words or four words, depending on breaking up into syllables. I'm so hating how I'm ending this episode. So I am just going to say you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.